0: You're listening to the Scottish Football Forums podcast, Euro Special, the home of Euro 2020 banter.
1: Hello and welcome to the special Euros edition of the Scottish Football Forums podcast. With the delayed Euro 2020 finals just around the corner, we have a series of Euros previous specials in the build-up to the big event. Have you heard the one about the Englishman, the Scotsman and the Welshman walking onto a podcast? Well, in the first of our previous specials, we get a media's take on things from a Scottish, English and Welsh perspective. You will now hear from Ian Mitchellmore of Wales Online, Gary Taphouse from Sky Sports and Chief Football Writer of the Scottish Daily Mail, Stephen McGowan, who give their thoughts on their respective nations' chances. Sit back, relax and enjoy the first of the Euros editions of the Scottish Football Forum's podcast. Okay, so part one of the um, Media Euro special, we are joined by um, the Welsh representative, that's um, journalist from Wales Online, Ian Mitchellmore. Ian, welcome on to Scottish Football Forum's podcast, how are
2: you? Good evening John, yeah very well thanks and um, absolute pleasure to be invited onto the podcast, so thanks for having me.
1: No, not a problem, no, thank you for answering and um, being part of this. Um, obviously, I was going to say how excited are you going to be for Euros, but um, given um, we're recording this on the 19th of April. By the time finals come, both both our respective nations might be without key players if um, certain clubs um, across Europe get their way. Like Gareth Bale could be missing for you like guys, and Kieran Tina could be missing for us, and Anne
2: Ramsey and uh, um, Andy Robertson. You just don't know what's going to happen. No, 19th of April. It's a, a date that's going to become quite fi- quite famous in in football, certainly international wise. Um, from now on, you know, it's something that we've all been talking about today and Wales fans certainly, you know, we've been pouring through the names you mentioned, just one of them there, Gareth Bale, of course, on loan at Tottenham, one of the, the 12 super league clubs, um, his parent club Real Madrid, they're also there, so he's in a bit of a pickle either way, um, but there's plenty of others as well, certainly for Wales, you know, Daniel James is, um, Ethan Ampadu at Chelsea, the, the Tottenham contingent with Joe Roden, Ben Davis, there's there's a big list, so, you um, yeah, there's a lot of them praying going on in Wales right now.
1: <laughs> yeah, you just let's hope that they'll get moved to the Bundesliga or something like that. Just to, you know, buy Munich's a better um, level than some of these teams. So
2: Yes, send them all to Germany. But no, there's, um, there's a bit of concern. But I think there's sort of that apprehension sort of muted a little bit where I think there's a, a belief that things will get sorted so that that's not the case. But that's certainly an optimistic view.
1: Yeah, let's hope that common sense um, prevails somewhere, um, obviously, um, we just hope they don't take out the players too much, um, maybe it might be a bit too soon for that, but we'll wait and see, um, fingers crossed for both nations, because let's be honest, um, both nations will be very heavily affected, well you guys in particular, because you've rounded off about six and think Scotland have just got the three, um, so um, you might be worse off if um, these clubs get their way.
2: Yeah, most likely. I mean, it's not something you'd probably say about Wales in the past, but such as the development of the, the country in the last sort of 10, 15 years or so, you know, there's there's been stars in this team, even though it's all been about a collective effort, which was summed up by the Euro twenty sixteen campaign. But you know, there's certainly a lot more individual and star talent in there now with just some of those names I mentioned, the Bales and the Ramses and even the likes of Daniel James going to clubs like Man United, roden and Ben Davis at Spurs with with Bale now as well. So mm-hmm. yeah, there's certainly been a big shift in in the last sort of five to ten years or so, and it could come back to bite us in a few months. But fingers crossed, as you said, common sense prevails.
1: Yeah, let's hope so. Yeah. Just only um, keep our fingers crossed. But obviously there'll be anticipation building because um, obviously this is. This is not new territory for you guys anymore. Um, <laughs> no, it, you ended, what, what was it, a 58-year course of tournament football by getting to year 2016 and now it's two euros in the bounce and um, it must be a really good um, time to be a Wales fan right now.
2: It is, you know, it's, it's like London Busters, isn't it? You wait from 1958 to 2016 and it's a long old wait, you know, certainly myself watching Welsh football as a as a kid growing up, it was it was awful. You know, you'd, you'd turn up through these bad times and there was just just were very very few good times, and when even when they were, they didn't count for for anything anyway. And I think the closest I came during my childhood, you know, nearly qualifying for Euro two thousand and four, and then obviously missing out to the Russia in the playoffs in in quite tough circumstances as well in Cardiff. So that was kind of that sort of summed up um, my childhood and growing up watching Wales. Then obviously, eventually, we had that shift and uh, a memorable um, qualifying campaign for the, the twenty sixteen Euros, and, and of course, the tournament itself was just. Um, ask any fan across Wales and they'll tell you it's the best summer of their lives. So it's been a real shift um, and a lot of people to, to thank for that at the FAW as well.
1: Yeah, without a doubt. Uh, probably one of the um, biggest thanks you've got to give um, at the start was uh, Gary Speeds because he obviously came in and it was such a change. I think you won five of the last, uh, sorry, four of the last five um, qualifying games in that um I think it was Euro 2012 campaign, and then unfortunately um, he took his life. But, um, you know, that must have been, he put some of the building blocks in place and people wonder what might have happened had Speed been still been in charge. But of course, if anything, it's galvanised the country in some way.
2: Yeah, I fully understand what you mean, John. I mean, it's, you know, Welsh football was in a little bit of disarray in the sort of, in the noughties, the Toshak years, you know, he was, giving young players the chance and, and Brian Flynn is assistant as well and there was a sense that things were sort of on the cusp of improving but not to the levels that we had and I think around the time Gary Speed took over I think we were as low as 117th in the world rankings and and, and all of a sudden we got up into the top 10 by the sort of you know a, a few years ago so in a remarkable turnaround and Gary Speed played an enormous part not just in terms of the football on the field but off it you know he was a very professional man of course um, he was for a long period of time he was the, the third most capped footballer for Wales had a brilliant club career himself with you know, massive clubs Leeds Newcastle Everton and you know he was he was loved in the game especially at Wales and he was a committed player as well which you know a lot of players had leveled against him but they weren't but he certainly was one that was you know he gave his all for that shirt and he did the exact same as a manager and you know off the pitch he made things as professional as he could he wanted players to have the facilities the best ones that they could have to replicate at club level. Um, and as you say, you know the results turned as well, which was a, a big, big turning point. And you know, just two weeks before he sadly took his life in, in tragic circumstances, they beat Norway four-one in a friendly with a, a great performance that offered a lot of hope. So yeah, he was um, a, a huge part of, of this sort of machine that's now built into Wales being a far more consistent force on the international stage.
1: Yeah, we heard it, and obviously Chris Coleman came in, and Chris, by his own admission. Didn't want to change too much of what um, had gone on um, with what Gary built in place, but he then quickly realised he had to do some sort of changes. I think one of the key things he did, because um, Arm Rams is a great player, but he wasn't, he was too young to be a leader of that team. He gave the armband to Ashley Williams, there was no questions, and from then on it just started clicking from him. I mean, there's that game where you beat Scotland at um, Cardiff, which we won't talk about, <laughs> but um, but certainly from there things started to improve, and then obviously it laid on to qualify for years twenty sixteen and you did it in good stealth because you beat Bel you you got four points against them um, Belgium in that qualifying campaign as well.
2: Yeah. I mean as you said there that the Chris Coleman took over in horrific circumstances. He knew it himself and, and credit to him for being bold enough to take that job because it's a job that nobody wanted. And he said it himself. His own words were I don't want this job right now. I wish I wasn't here because it means fido is still here. So um a lot of respect for him for doing that, and you know it, it took time. I think they lost the first five games uh, under him, if you count that that first Costa Rica game after um, Gary Speed's uh, death. But you know that I think it was a six-one hammering against Serbia in Novi Sad. It's one of those nights that's just etched in Welsh football history. as just an absolute nightmare, and it was it was torrid. And I think that's where they realised things need to change. And that decision you referenced there, it was absolutely key in that. You know Ashley Williams, a, a leader, a really experienced player, no nonsense. He took that role. He took the mantle off Aaron Ramsey and, you know, credits Aaron Ramsey for um, just getting on with his business because he flourished after that. And, you know, as a player, we all know what he's like now. At, we've seen it at Arsenal and, and, and in not so much in as often, but in stages at UV as well and certainly for Wales when he's been available. Um, yeah, that was a big decision. And, you know, the Euro 2016 qualifying campaign, I mean, where do you begin with that? So four points off Belgium mm. to finish second, qualify for the tournament on merit and everything as well. It was just... It was unbelievable. And it sort of felt like almost the end of a brilliant cycle, but also the beginning of a new one as well, because, you know, there's been so many years of torment, as you referenced earlier, 58 years. It's a long old time. So um, but little did we know that that qualifying campaign was going to be the start of something, not just a brilliant summer, but a really good five years that's followed.
1: Oh, yeah, without a doubt, and obviously that thats someone France of 2016, I think there's been documentaries and movies made about it, um, it's just an incredible story, because, um, you know, there's pe- people saying, the, the, the English media obviously saying that, um, yeah, it's a matter of, um you know, how far England can go, but Wales and Northern Ireland are just there to make up the numbers, but... Um, you know, she exceeded all expectations and, um, you know, winning two of the three group games. And the game against England was a last minute, a 94th minute goal that beat you. But you still won the other two games to win the group. And you played, uh, you blew rush off the park. I mean, beating them three now, you know, did you sense at that point that you could maybe go further than just the next round at that point?
2: Yeah, absolutely. And I mean, the key game was the, the Slovakia one right at the beginning. You know, I think... They could have gone 1 0 up inside three minutes when Hamjik had a, a brilliant chance and Ben Davis clears it off the line. And that just transforms Wales' European Championship. You know, if that goes in, it's probably a different tournament. Probably Wales don't get the win in that first game. Momentum's gone and things totally change. But we end up winning it 2 1. And, you know, I think players and even Chris Coleman himself has admitted that Wales didn't perform how they should have done in that England game. They weren't themselves. And, Credit to England, they were the better team over the course of that 90 minutes and did deserve to win, in in my opinion, even after sort of Wales went ahead uh, with a a free kick that sort of Joe Hart didn't exactly cover himself in glory with from Gareth Bale. But um, it wasn't to be, but you know, full credit, they responded so, so well against Russia. And it was a wonderful performance, probably one of the best in my lifetime as a complete performance, aside from maybe the wins over Belgium in that same tournament and maybe Italy back in. Um, the 2004 qualifying campaign in Cardiff. But yeah, great performance. And it just gave the the whole country belief that anything could happen. And, you know, teams started to fear Wales. And I think they realised, hang on, as you said, they're not here to make up numbers. They've got enough quality in that team, in your Bales, your Ramsey, Joe Allen, who had a phenomenal tournament, by the way. Um, Also a collective effort as well. You know, your Wayne Hennessy's, your Ashley Williams, Neil Taylors, Gunters, uh, those lads, they played an enormous part as well.
1: Yeah, without did you manage to get over there either in your work capacity or as a fan?
2: Uh, not in my work capacity. I didn't start this role until a couple of months after, but I was there for the Portugal game, the semi-finals. That was a long old drive. <laughs> um, so my father drove down from North Wales to pick me up in South Wales, drove to the Dover crossing, and then uh, yeah, very early start on the game day. I think it was about six thirty in the morning. We left from Calais, drove all the way to Lyon, which if you know your geography, is a hell of a trek across France. We got there at about four o'clock, about four or five hours before kickoff. so yeah, sunk a very few amount of beers and watched. It was probably the, the most enjoyable defeat in my lifetime, really.
1: <laughs> yeah, I suppose after um, the Belgium game, you just had to go over there, but I mean the Belgium game, I mean it's just weird to start with that, you know. Belgium, one of the favourites to to win the tournament um, and again, you showed no fear. You took four points off in qualifying and no, uh Robson Cano's goal is just absolutely sublime. For someone who'd been a free agent that summer as well. Um, and it's that's another incredible story. And, and then people are sitting up and taking notes thinking, hang on, this is a better team than even we gave credit to.
2: Yeah, and I mean the subsequent transfer talk of him joining Atletico Madrid made it even more, you know, enjoyable. Never materialized, unfortunately, but but there we go. But I think the key with that game. Uh, Rajan Nanderland scored, you know, a wonderful strike from him, put Belgium ahead. And I think, you know, I, I certainly said this myself to a lot of friends who I was with at the time watching the game, you know, oh, well, it's it's been a great ride and let's just enjoy this last game and have a few beers and enjoy seeing Wales at the quarterfinals. And then, you know, Wales turned on the style. They were excellent after going behind and deservedly equalised through Ashley Williams at a bullet header and a, a rare goal for him on the international team. Um mm-hmm. You Know what a contribution he's made to Welsh football by the way, given his recent retirement. So it's worth yeah. mentioning that. Um, fortunate to speak to him last week as well about everything that he's done in his career. And, um, yeah, he's brilliant, good as gold as always. And then, as you say, that that goal from, from Hal Robson Carno, I mean, where's that come from? It's a once in a lifetime thing. Um, football wales ahead, and then you know, they obviously have to survive a, a really nervy spell of pressure and some, you know. Missed opportunities in there. for I think it was Fellaini, Lukaku. There was a few good chances. Eden Hazard had a really good one as well. Then, yeah, Mr. Chris Gunter goes and crosses the ball when he wasn't supposed to, according to Chris Coleman. And the rest is history. Sam Vokes heads it in. So, yeah, capped off a a remarkable night and one that nobody will ever forget in these parts.
1: Oh, without without it, it was just incredible. It was just great to see... Someone um, else from the rails to um, go so far in the competition. Um, we're obviously hopefully we could get to the final. Um, Portugal, for me, um, although they ended up winning the thing, they to me were not um, great European champions, but they had just enough to beat a Wales side that were depleted a wee bit with some injuries and suspensions, mainly for me Aaron Ramsay, because a lot of people talk about Bale, and rightly so, but for me the key component in that Wales team in that tournament was Aaron Ramsey, and missing him, I think, was a big blow for Wales that night.
2: Yeah, it was absolutely key, and I mean I think it's holding in the end, you know, first half Wales were sort of, not hanging on, but they were in there, they were making a game of it and to get to nil-nil at half-time, you think, okay we're in it, and this is all to play for, and then you know, quick goals in the second half, a towering header from Cristiano Ronaldo who out jumps James Chesters. I mean, the athleticism is absolutely phenomenal. And you just take your hat off to him for that. And then yeah. the second one was a slight deflection. And before you know it, the game's pretty much gone. And you don't have those players like a Ramsey to turn it on its head. And Gareth Bale just dropped so deep he ran his socks off. You could see how much he wanted to, to make something happen. And you know, it's, you just can't do it at that level. Portugal are so, so streetwise. Credit to them because, again, they managed that game so well in the second half. And, and as we saw it in the final as well, they did it brilliantly to, to negotiate their way to extra time and then go and win it with a, a goal from Edair, who Swansea fans will know me too well as being absolutely hopeless. Um, <laughs> but such is the least football. That's how these, these things work. But, um, yeah, key absences probably did just make it a step too far for Wales that night. Had they been there, who knows? you'd certainly feel had a better chance. Um, but yeah, it's, it's certainly a big what-if.
1: Yeah, big what-if, but at least you were close to tell that story um, and, you know, credit to Wales for what they did. So, you know, you fast a couple of years, so um, after the World, um, after missing out in the World Cup, um, Coleman also goes to Sunderland. Um, Ryan Giggs comes in for his first managerial job. Um, but you 2020 qualifying um, it went it went well on the end It, it was looking up and tuck at one point, but they got the formula on and beaten Hungary that night in uh, um, in November twenty nineteen. I mean that sounds so long ago that you. It's so long since you actually qualify because you qualify for your twenty twenty and obviously it's delayed. I mean it's obviously been a long time coming, but um, but you know just you know somewhat with that meant. How did that relate in um, compared to twenty sixteen?
2: Yeah, it was it's incredible that hungry night. Really, I mean, that was the last time they had fans at Cardiff City Stadium for a Wales game. So it's you know it's, it's an awful long time. It took a nearly a year and a half now. So um, the campaign was it was a, a, a turbulent one because let's not forget they started off with a, a great win against Slovakia. You know, Daniel James really announced himself that day and you know got himself a, a move to Manchester United from Swansea not too long after as well. So um, it was significant. And then two really really tough away games in the summer against. Uh, Croatia and and Hungary and you know they gave a good account of themselves towards the end in Croatia but they left themselves with too much to do going 2-0 down you know they got a goal back through David Brooks but it was too much in horrific heat by the way I think it was about 32 degrees all the way through the game and yeah it took a lot out the players slight rotation then for the Hungary game in Budapest a few days later and you know Wales did have chances Gareth Bale was off the boil at that point things were not going well for him at Real Madrid and you could tell because he wasn't doing media duties for Wales either, which he always does. So, um, and then they go and concede the late goal in a game that they could easily have had a draw from, or probably even could have won. So, all of a sudden, from a bright start, it looked very, very bleak, especially in a, a five-team group where you've only got eight games. So, three games in and you've lost two; it, it didn't look good. So, um, and then up stepped Kefer Moore. You know, he came in. He'd been in a training camp in Portugal before those two summer games and unfortunately got injured and couldn't take part. So his sort of introduction was delayed, but it's something that Ryan Giggs and his coaching staff had looked at well before that. So he came in and, you know, they changed the style of play from that moment on in with him. He's, you know, tall striker, very good with his feet, but you be daft not to use his height and his um, ability to hold the ball up and score headers as well. It's what he does really well. So, yeah, there's a big shift from there. With him and he played a massive part in those last five games where Wales sort of really grinded out some results and then obviously ended with a wonderful display against Hungary, you know, deservedly won that game, two goals from Aaron Ramsey, who felt like he'd been helped for a very, very long time and showed exactly what he's all about when he came back. Yeah,
1: he's, he's such a class player, Aaron Ramsey on his day. Um, it's just injuries obviously prevent him um, quite a lot, but yeah, it was a tremendous achievement qualifying again. Um, and then obviously you've had to wait. And But I mean, you're, Nations League form was still really good. You know, you won five out your six your six games. Only Finland took points off you. Um, so I mean, just and that that despite the fact Giggs has had to take time out because of uh, his court his legal co- cases, um, Robert Page has still stepped in. So that just shows what a good management team those two are that they keep in contact so much um, that they keep that momentum going because it can be difficult, it can be unsettling when a manager has to temporarily um, stand at the sidelines. Of course, World Cup qualifiers have started all right because you won that key game against Czech Republic as well.
2: Yeah, exactly. I mean, you know, something like that is as serious as that as well. I mean, you know, must Ryan Giggs denies the allegations and Mm -hmm. he's fully cooperating with the police process. And, you know, we've just got to wait to see what happens with that before making any judgment. But, Full credit to, to Rob Page, Albert Sluvenberg, you know, the the players, everyone who's been involved at the FAW, they've really just stuck to task. And, you know, let's not forget Ryan Giggs. He's, he's not there actively, but he's still heavily involved. He's picking teams and um, playing a massive part in squads. And, and Rob Page is more than happy with that. He's always said, this is Ryan Giggs' squad. This is his team. He's just almost a, a custodian of this sort of interim role and he'll do it for as long as he wants because he's a proud Welshman, former international as well. So... And what a job he's done, you know, in, in, in six games. He's won for a draw against the USA in a friendly where it was a scrap team for Wales and against an experienced USA team. And the one defeat, that one, you know, sort of only a, a couple of weeks ago against, uh, you know, best ranked side in the world in Belgium where they took, they took the lead and, you know, played fairly well for a lot of, um, a lot of that game, but a couple of defensive lapses mm-hmm. cost them. But yeah, Rob Page has done a, a remarkable job in what are tricky circumstances. And, and let's not forget, you know, for years... Wales have been labelled as this one-man team with Gareth Bale and, you know, even Ramsey, but we're proving now we did that. Uh, the last camp the Czech Republic game, no Aaron Ramsey, no Ben Davis, no David Brooks. Um, I'm sure there's more than that. Joe um, you know, Allen as well, he was the other one who got on the pad here. You know, it's, it, it's, it's tough. Wales, that, that's the lot of star quality and then they still got a win against Czech Republic who are Certainly, no mugs. They proved themselves to be a really a top team in that game, and they took a point off Belgium themselves. So Wales are clearly doing something right, and you know they're fighting for the cause regardless of what's going on in the background.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah, well, I watched that Czech Republic game with interest because obviously Scotland have them in the in the Euros. So it was good to see that um, you were that you could beat them, but also at the same point, I'm thinking. They were quite good with 10 With ten men. I actually thought watching that game, they were better 10 v 11 than they were when it was even numbers either side of that, which is quite ironic. But um, you did the job and, um, and got the victory. So I mean, looking, looking ahead to the tournament this year, it's ironic you mentioned Joe Allen. A year ago, he'd have been missing this tournament because of his serious injury. But now he, he's he got a good chance of obviously being in the squads. I mean, is he still regarded as a keeper um, despite his advancing years and the fact he's not playing the Premier League um, like he was before?
2: Oh, 100%. Yeah, absolutely. You see him when he plays for Wales, they're a different team. You know, him in that midfield slot. And especially considering without Joe Allen, the options there, they're very inexperienced. You know, Ethan Ampidou's a fantastic talent, but, you know, he's had problems with injuries, fitness, and, you know, he's not. Quite been able to sort of step up consistently. He's had some good games for Sheffield United this season, but really needs to do it on a more consistent basis. Then the other options, you know, Dylan Levitt's not played much club football. Look at the move to Croatia, where, you know, he's, it's not been the great, greatest loan for him so far. And, and that's after a, a disappointing loan at Charlton. Matt Smith, who's a, a wonderfully gifted footballer, you know, contracted to Man City, but he's had a lot of loans as well. Bill Morel, same situation. And these are all sort of under 22, 23 years of age. So, there's um there's not much options beyond Joe Allen when, you know, when he's not available, which he hasn't been for for quite a while now, up until recently, and he goes and get injured again. But um, it sounds like he is going to be fit for the summer by all accounts, from what Michael O'Neill said at Stoke. Um, and there's no doubt he's gonna be an enormous cog in, in Wales's machine because you know, you only have to look back at what happened in twenty sixteen. He was um one of the players at the tournament for me, certainly for Wales anyway.
1: Yeah, without a doubt. he he was one of the, the stars, as you say, and obviously, um, you know, he's probably he's, he's, he's one of the players that probably does the un- underrated job. Um, with, to let your more key flair players like Bale and Ramsey and James, um, and obviously, um, just stating the obvious, those three are going to be absolutely key to how well Wales get on this tournament because they're top top players playing for top top clubs.
2: Yeah, 100%. And, you know, like you say, on, on Joe Allen there, he's just selfless. It's all about the cause. Whereas, you know, Dan James, you know he's got pace and he's going to go in behind and wreak havoc. Bale, you know, with a ball at his feet, he can cause all sorts of problems. David Brooks, I mean, Wales have been robbed of not having him with with injuries. What a talent he is. I've loved watching his development um, at Sheffield United and, and and now at Bournemouth when he's back in the fold in the championship. And there's a good chance he might be back in the Premier League next season as well, whether with Bournemouth or elsewhere. So, Um, You know, there's a lot of talent in that sort of front, in those front positions. And then Kiefer Moore offers something slightly different, as I've already alluded to. Um, But that's where you do need that Joe Allen behind, who's a bit more disciplined, a bit more knowledge. Give that, you know, defence back four or back five, whatever it may be. Um, Because Wales have changed in recent times. Um, Have that sort of guile and, you know, willingness to do the hard yards that allows those players to flourish in front of him.
1: Yeah, and you've also got guys like uh, Harry Wilson's got a, a wonderful effort. Ben Woodman scored a great goal against Austria. I mean, I don't know how his progress is going, but I mean, it's it's good to know um, that Wales have those options to um, either start or come off the bench in, in tight games that um, you might need.
2: Yeah, and this is that's one of the key there. You mentioned depth. I mean, it's probably the thing that cost us uh, a place at the 2018 World Cup, or, or certainly a playoff. Of course, we got so close uh, to qualifying for that tournament. With uh, losing in the last game to Republic of Ireland in, in tough circumstances, and you ended that campaign campaign without Gareth Bale. Um, Joe Allen got a, a nasty injury early on in that game against the Irish, and you know things just didn't transpire for us. And the lack of depth ultimately cost us. Um, and that's something that Giggs really did well to address. He gave a lot of debuts in his first year in charge. It was a bit of a free hit as well. You know, we had the China Cup. We played China, Uruguay, then a Mexico friendly. Then it's the first ever Nations League, which was sort of a step into the unknown fans, didn't really know what it was all about. And it was a chance to sort of develop players and give them a chance in competitive games while also not really being that much at stake because you've still got the proper qualifying format to come a year later. Um, And that ultimately got us over the line in in 2019. You know, as I say, um, Wales were without Aaron Ramsey for the vast majority of that campaign. And um, other players had injuries along the way. David Brooks... In the summer, you know, he didn't play a part in the last five games as well. And there's a few others. So um, that depth is something that Ryan Giggs has certainly made a massive part to shift when, you know, one player's injured, there's a natural replacement. We've seen it in every single position in the Wales squad. Um, And it's probably why we are, you know, we're competitive even with these injuries now.
1: Yeah, without a doubt. And um you've got you need to be competitive because it's not an easy group you've got. Um, you know, Switzerland um on the twelfth on the twelfth of June um in Baku. Um Switzerland's also a very handy side. Um Turkey on the sixteenth, I mean Turkey um, you know, have beaten Holland and Norway in uh, the start of the World Cup qualifying. Um, although I think they then drew that next game um against Latvia, which is quite surprising. And then the twentieth of June, you're up against an Italy side who really are Um, improving after missing out in the the World Cup and Roberto Manchie is obviously a top manager Um, three tough games and we don't even know if there's going to be many Wales fans there given the travel restrictions and uh, I know um, there's been um, discussions about the fans but we don't know how many away fans if any will be allowed to travel because that's not been clarified I mean, it's going to be really tough
2: yeah, it's a shame, you know, like I say, especially for a team like Wales who, you know, haven't tasted this often, only at a second ever European Championships and mm-hmm. they were lauded for the way they sort of behaved and conducted themselves in France in, in 2016. It was a wonderful tournament, oh, just a, a pleasure to be there and we enjoyed the ride, whereas I think this time there's more of a sort of a shift of, OK, there's expectation now, there's fans who want success and sort of demand it, but there is a bit more pressure. So it's, it's a bit of a shame that, they, you know, they're not going to be there in numbers and and even if they are, it's going to be very, very minor by the sound of things as, as things stand on this dreaded 19th of April day that we're all going to remember. Um But no, in terms of the group, it looks a, a torrid group, especially when you look at last month's results. I mean, Italy just pouring over them. I think they won all three in um, in March. They won six on the bounce, 14 goals scored and, and none conceded. I mean, you know, it's it's what you sum, you, you'd sort of sum up an Italian side over the years, but Roberto Mancini's done a, he's doing a great job there and he's, he's sort of got them back to their old traits of defending well and, and relying on sort of attacking the talent in the, in the final third to deliver the goods and they're going to be a tough, tough ask. You don't really want to go into that last game against them in Rome of all places looking for a result where you need to topple a team like them who are in the top 10 um, and then it means you're relying on getting some big results against two teams who are also banging form in Switzerland and Turkey. I think Switzerland won all three of their games last month as well so They're a formidable side with plenty of talent in there, but collectively they look a force as well. And Mm -hmm. Turkey, as you mentioned, you know, a great result against the Netherlands and a bit of a surprise one against Latvia, I have to admit, but still seven points from nine last month. thats um, uh, It it looks a bit ominous, if I'm honest. I'm slightly concerned after seeing that, but who knows? Hopefully we've had the, um, the good results out of the way in time for the summer.
1: Yeah, exactly. And you had, as you said, um, your only defeat was against um, the best team in the world and you beat a, a decent check in the public side and what looks like an improving one. So um, I think you've get, it's going to be a tight group, let's 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 be honest with you. Um, and yeah, in, in terms of your own, your own capacity and your job at Wales Online, do you think you'll be um, getting to go get to back
2: here in Rome? I certainly hope so. Um, I think the initial conversations we've had, they'll be that I'll be allowed to go um you know all the accreditation forms and everything else has if they've come through as normal um you know I'm, I'm i'm fortunate in many ways but also by being careful you know I've, I've never been near the virus i've been lucky to have but you know those around me have done the same and you know, stick to restrictions and just be sensible about doing your work and so hopefully all things being well i'll be i'll be able to go i'll be incredibly fortunate if i am um yeah, fingers crossed on, on that one. It's something that's still uh, ongoing and it's quite weird to be in this situation where we're less than two months away and nothing's booked. So, oh, quite nervous on that front, if I'm honest, John.
1: <laughs> no, I can, I can understand. Yeah. Well, let's hope that your, um, your employers um, do get to change and stuff out, uh, and that you get to enjoy it. Um, and I'll just um, run off just asking, how far do you think Wales can go in this tournament?
2: Oh, what a question, John. Cheers for that one. Um yeah, if they can get out of the group, who knows? It could be the same as last time. I mean, you know, I think Slovakia were a tricky side last time. Um Wales just about grinded out a result there. They could have got something against England if they performed. Then the Russia one was a fantastic performance. And I'm not be you know, with the greatest respect to Russia, they're not the force that they have been in, in previous times. You know, we saw it at the 2018 World Cup when they hosted it. There was, you know, the fans and everything else, it played their part, but they weren't that same in 2016. So um, this time around, I'm just looking at three really, really tough teams, but they're going to say the same about Wales as well. You know, they're not going to want to come up against your your and your Ramses if all well and they're all fit and um, they're all granted permission to leave this Super League nonsense, if I can call it that, for <laughs> to play for the countries. Um, how far can they go? I've dodged that very well, haven't I, John? Um, yeah, who knows? But you were saying for time, you've got to at least
1: go at the final. <laughs>
2: Yeah, I'll, I'll bite your hand off for another semi-final. Let's leave it there. <laughs> <laughs>
1: That's a good way to leave it. Well, listen, all the best um, to you in terms of um, getting accreditation for tournament and good luck to Wales um, and Euro 20, um 2020. The delayed Euro 2020, as we say. Um, but all the best, Ian. Thanks for your time.
2: And likewise for Scotland. And, and hopefully we'll be uh, hearing a lot more of yes sir, I can boogie.
1: Yes. <laughs> We're on board for that. Thanks, Ian. In part two of this media special, let's hear an England perspective, as I'm joined by Sky Sports commentator Gary Taphouse. Gary, thank you for coming along. How are you doing? I'm
0: oh, very good, thanks, John. Very good indeed. How are you?
1: Yeah, good, thank you. Well, as you can appreciate, um, we've waited 23 years for a major tournament, and yeah. I know for England it's every second year. It's no big deal. So, But how is the excitement for these finals?
0: Yeah, well, it's, it's strange, isn't it, with the pandemic? Yeah. Um, I think for a long time we've been thinking, well, is it even going to happen? And if it is going to happen, are we going to have fans? And if we are going to have fans, how many? So um, it seems to have been up in the air for such a long time. Um, it's only now that we can start to really look forward to it, knowing that it is going ahead. I mean, it's it's going to be strange, isn't it? With 25% capacity fans and, you know, the locations have changed and, um the squads have got bigger and you know things have uh, the goalposts have moved a little bit but at least there is a big tournament to look forward to and and of course it is a big tournament because it's an expanded tournament and there are lots of teams involved and some of them for the first time so um yeah I'm really really looking forward to it now now that we've actually
1: got the confirmation that it is happening and, and it's all going ahead yeah, definitely. I mean, the fact that there's um, 25%, okay, it's not 100%. You're not going to have 90,000 90, at Wembley for the Scotland game, for example, but you are going to have 22,000 and it is better than nothing because at the start of the year, it was looking like it was going to be a closed doors tournament, which really would have been a killer.
0: Well, I don't see any point in that going ahead, do you? No. Um, it, it's been bad enough having an entire league season with no fans um, to have an international tournament behind closed doors, to me, is utterly pointless. Um, and the only reason for it to go ahead is money. Um, if you haven't got the atmosphere, then you haven't got the tournament, as far as I'm concerned. So, yeah, it, it's good news. I mean, we saw, um, if you cast our minds back to the, you know, just the League Cup final, even with, what was it, 10,000, 8,000 yeah, in Wembley? Um, <laughs> Huge difference, you know. Having that real crowd noise, it suddenly felt like football again. So if you multiply that by, you know, two or three, then I think it's 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 going to be brilliant.
1: Yeah, without a doubt. I mean, there's not been many occasions where there has been some fans, when, um, but even like, for example, up here when we had 300 fans at Aberdeen and North County a couple of times, it was still a better atmosphere and noise and hearing the fake crowd noise that some um, clubs are doing and they've obviously tried but it doesn't work the same but yeah um, an international tournament without fans just would, have, just would have been a nonsense to be perfectly honest, it would have need to be put back again but then how do you put it back in a year when there's the World Cup next year but at least we've got it and we've got later in the tunnel and for our respective nations we're obviously um there's also games on home so for both of us, and it just your mind back straight away. You're in '96 because obviously we're in the same group again.
0: Yes, well, gosh, you '96. I mean, I'm going to sound you know really old here, but what a what an occasion that was. I mean, I was um, I was 20 years old at university. Um, having a home tournament was just so thrilling, and actually even worse <laughs> the first half of that. Uh, tournament, I was on holiday with pals in in Falaraki so you can imagine the atmosphere um, down the main street there all of the bars heaving for those big games I watched the England-Scotland game and the England-Holland game um, in this completely rammed bar, huge screen I think they had Radio 5 commentary pumping out of the speakers Um, you know, everyone on the beers, so I mean for me that was just an unbelievable tournament i think you know if you look back dispassionately a lot of the games actually weren't great um it wasn't a high quality tournament was it by any means um but obviously you know all these years on you kind of remember the big occasions so england scotland obviously um the penalties against spain um and then obviously the Germany game, which and I was back home by then. I watched that with some mates and I don't think I'll ever forget that uh, agonising drama. So, um, yeah, for me, I'll always have tremendous memories of that tournament, um, even if, if you look at it in years gone by, it wasn't the greatest quality tournament. I think the fact that we were hosting it um, 30 years after the World Cup um, you know, there were games up and down the country, full houses, just that real excitement and three lions blaring out wherever you went. Um, it, it just felt very, very special. And, and me being that age as well, um, and being totally obsessed with football and commentary, um, you know, I'd watch the live game and then I'd watch the highlights on the other channel just to hear how different the commentary was. And then I'd try and hear the radio commentary as well. Um, so, yeah, proper obsession at that age for me.
1: Yeah, so you would have been like watch BBC, listen to Barry Davis, and then see the ITV highlights with Brian Moore and stuff Correct. like that. Correct.
0: <laughs> Every game.
1: Yes. We, yeah, we, I was just
0: glued to the TV for the entire
1: month. Yeah, I, th- I think you make a good point um, in terms of the quality of the games because obviously in the last um, in the last eight. Um, two of the four games went to extra time penalties. In the semi-final, both games went to extra time penalties and in the final, that went to golden goal um, yeah. and even some of the crowds weren't particularly great in that tournament there wasn't, apart from obviously England and games involving themselves, there wasn't many full houses which was a bit of a shame in that tournament
0: Yeah, I mean, like I say I'm kind of, if I cast my memory back, I'm actually reading a, a book at the moment Um completely separate to the football. It's a Mark Billingham crime drama, but it's set against the backdrop of Euro 96. And um, and they're talking about matches on in the background that I've got no memory of at all, even though I de- definitely watched them. Um, so that's probably a, a clue to the fact that there are a lot of games which kind of pass me by of just an excuse to go to the pub and have some beers, to be honest, rather than um, being completely glued to the football it's those big moments in any tournament that we remember. Then, I mean, you know, as I say, I was um, I was in the Greek Islands for that England Scotland game, and you know, we'll never ever forget that. And again, you know, for large swave, it was a really hot sunny day, and you know, there were long spells where not a lot happened. Funnily enough, um, during the first lockdown, I just remembered this. Um, I was asked by UEFA to do some commentary over that the highlights of that game. Because um, UEFA were putting out um, highlights of all sorts of famous games from the Euros and the Champions League and lots of other tournaments, and they asked that was one of the ones they asked me to do. So I had to watch the whole thing again, um, and then just do. I think it was about five or ten minutes of highlights, pretending that I was commentating. Um, And yeah, it was really interesting to watch to watch the match again because you know it was quite slow. Um, it it was a hot day there was long spells of just not a lot happening really it's very easy to put together the first goal the missed Scotland penalty and then the Gaza goal and make it look like it was an amazing event but actually it was long spells of not a lot happening in that game Um, but obviously you know as I say as an Englishman I can't help but remember Gaza's goal and think you know one of the, the highlights of the tournament with the dentist chair celebration in fact John, I actually did my um, my university dissertation was about um, Euro 96 and really? the, uh, the sort of the tabloid coverage of it because um, going into the tournament, all of that controversy of the England players drinking far too much on tour and the dentist chair and um, how Terry Venables just didn't seem to have them under control at all. And it was very interesting watching how the tabloids completely changed their tune from that to... Yeah, semi-final heroes um, and that was enough for me to do a 10,000 word dissertation on so uh, and yeah I, I studied all of that coverage very very um, closely in my final year at uni
1: yeah I mean um, I, I wish that england Scotland game did have nothing ha- happened for 90 minutes and we got a 0-0 <laughs> draw to, um, instead of what happened I mean the McAllister penal miss that haunts me because um, yeah I was so confident he was going to score. If you you obviously yeah. being down south will remember if whenever Gary McAllister took a penalty, he would normally put yeah. it in like top right hand corner, top left hand corner. He was just so composed. That day he changed his tactic going down the middle. He went low, miss- didn't he? And it
0: was quite a I mean, it was a good oh. save.
1: Yeah, it was. It, was, it was. One that he'd
0: expect to make.
1: Yeah. But yeah, David Siemens um got a uh, um, voodoo doll against us because he made that save against us in 99 as well from Christian Daly it yes. knocked us out. So, yeah. <laughs> and he let Clyver score as well to put us out. Although to be fair, um, when you look at it objectively, going into that game, if Scotland did win three 0 against Switzerland and England won one nil, that would be enough. Bottom line is no, Scotland didn't do enough. We only won one yeah, nil. Wow, gosh, there's a
0: thought.
1: Although Switzerland weren't a bad side, so but no, we well, needed more. They unfortunately, game
0: against England, they um. You know, England were supposed to win that quite comfortably, weren't they? And it all went horribly wrong with the with the um, with the Stuart Pierce giving that away, and then them equalising, and um, yeah, it wasn't. A, it, it, that was a, a signal for the tournament. Really, it wasn't. It, it wasn't a great game. It was a little bit of a, an anti climax that game. And, and I, like I said, I think a lot of the games were like that. I think with dewy eyed nostalgia, looking back, it, we we always think of it as a. An incredible event, And it was, for me, it was more of an event than uh, a quality football tournament. I think that's mm-hmm. that's just how I'll always look back on it so fondly because of the age I was and the just the general excitement. You know, the whole country got swept along with Euro 96 fever, even if it wasn't the most stunning tournament we're ever going to see.
1: Yeah, and I think obviously the three-line song obviously kicked off um, big time, you know, after the Gascoigne goal, which was, I'll hold my hands up, that was a... A piece of, of absolute brilliance from Paul Gascoigne. In fact, that year, he hurt me twice because I'm an Aberdeen supporter as well and he scored a great goal oh. for Rangers against Aberdeen a yeah, few weeks yeah. earlier in the league that won Rangers eight in a row that year. Um, it was a very good goal and then he does not even better one against Scotland, which made me sick. Well, I mean, <laughs> it's
0: one of the best goals that yes. we'll ever see, yeah. isn't it? You know, I mean, as, as an England fan especially, you know, I, mm-hmm. if I was going to talk about the greatest goals I've ever seen then that, has to be right up there simply because of the fact that it, it, the penalty had just been missed. We're all thinking England had thrown us away. Um, and then to produce that little bit of magic at mm. Wembley in a full house in the blazing hot sunshine, with, and then the celebration afterwards, um, it all that just was funny together. to be fair. Yeah, and that's part of the whole history of it, isn't it? So, yeah, um, yeah. One, of, one of the greatest England goals.
1: Yeah, and the thing is, I mean, you, you mentioned that um, the the tabloids thought that Terry Venables had no control over the players. He let the, he, if you look back at his time at Tottenham, etc., that he kind of let that kind of um, thing happen. So long as they then went out in the pitch and did it for him, and more often than not, they did. And in that tournament, I still wonder if England kept Venables, would could have won the World Cup two years later, but possibly. Um, yeah, you never know, but you certainly were very close in that semi-final. I mean, if Paul Gascoigne, I, I still think uh, if, that, away. if that's the other way about, if that's Gascoigne setting up for Shearer, you win the game. Yeah. But it's the other way about, and Gascoigne doesn't have that goal scorers' instincts. And then Southgate's unfortunate with a penalty, but
0: or, or Gascoigne from four years previously, maybe, maybe you know,
1: mm, possibly
0: Which, um, he couldn't have been any closer without making contact.
1: Yeah, it still haunts us <laughs> all that one. <laughs> it, che- it cheered us up a bit um, I'm not going to lie <laughs> um, on, on that point obviously I mean if you, if you look at it objectively most en- most English um, people want Scotland to do okay but it's not reciprocated down the other way how do you feel about that?
0: Uh, it's a strange one isn't it I mean um, I remember so, you know I remember certainly not just watching the England games but obviously watching the Scotland games and not just at that tournament but um you know, Italia, Italia 90 and and beyond. And yeah, we always wanted um, Scotland to win as long as they weren't playing England. And I don't know if it's partly because England fans see Scotland as a bit of a minnow. Um, I'm, I'm not saying they are, John, I'm saying I'm putting the question out there and letting people decide for themselves. Um, but, you know, equally, you know, my wife is um, a Republic of Ireland fan and I always want them to do well as well. So, yeah, I think um, generally speaking, I think many England fans will want Scotland to do well. I'm not sure that it's always the other way around, but you know, it, I'm sure I'm sure you could find some Scotland fans who would say, "Hey, I want all the home nations to do well." And of course, you know, we we are, we have got plenty of them, haven't we? In this yeah. in this tournament, so um, let's hope they all go as far as they can.
1: Yeah. Well, the way I look at it is, see, um, and I've got English um, family um, incidentally, but. Um, and they understand where I come from it's simply because I see England as our main rivals the same way as like, Celtic Sea Rangers and Man U see yeah. Man City it's that kind of thing but I appreciate from an England point of view why they don't see Scotland as a main rival because they see it as Germany
0: Oh, so. I'd love it if, if if we did see you as our main rivals and you know if, there was a time um, there was a time with Steve Clark where I wondered if you know they were going to start really climbing the rankings again I you know, I um Covered all of their um, qualifiers for the last uh, tournament, and of course, it all began with that Kazakhstan defeat, and it was some sort of downhill all the way, wasn't it? Um, but yeah, it, you know, before that, you thought, well, has he has he finally got things ticking along? And the, the jury still out, isn't it?
1: No, well, I mean, I think there's definitely signs of improvement because obviously Alec McLeish was in charge for that Kazakhstan game, and yeah. Um, yeah, yeah, of course, Clark came in. I think he had a yeah. tough start because they Belgium twice and Russia twice. Yeah, they're yeah, miles it was, it was better it was a than very, Scotland. Very, very tough
0: group.
1: Yeah, they're miles above us. So, but gradually we've been getting there, and the results have been proven And against Serbia, that was as good in a way performance as I've seen for Scotland for eight yeah, nine no minutes. And we should have won the game in 80 minutes. And you, th- you think then when we'll, when that goal from Jovic goes in, you thought, oh, no, here we go again. A new chapter has been written. And then when it goes to penalties, um, I was just so delighted. And I was delighted for your colleague Ian Crocker. Um, yes. Who I've spoken to a couple of times. Great guy. Um, it, when t- you could hear the joy in his voice because for years he was known as the jinx of Scottish football. Because yeah, ever cool. since he's been commentating up here, we hadn't done it. <laughs>
0: Oh no he's he's a, he's a true um a true Scotland fan these days. He even lives up there now, so yeah um no great guy, great commentator um good good mate of mine, and um yeah, one of the very best.
1: Yeah, he says you're a good guy as well when I mentioned I was speaking to you. So um, a wee shout-out for Crocs, who's also done a voiceover for um this piece. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, he doesn't miss a trick. Um, yeah, so other um, near misses that you've had other than 96. Um, so I put down Euro 2004 um, because penalties again beat you against yeah. Portugal. How much? I mean, because mm. you were looking good under when when Rooney was coming to the fore at that point, and then well, he it, it was Wayne
0: Rooney's tournament, wasn't it? Mm-hmm. You know, he just burst onto the scene um, the year before, and um, we were looking just totally unbeatable with him in the side. He just thought he'd always produce something, mm-hmm. um, you know, in a sort of side type of way, um, and yeah, the Portugal game. I mean. Where do I even start with that one? Um, it was heartbreaking, absolutely heartbreaking. I can remember it so well. The way it just slipped away and, you know, going to extra time and going to so the Campbell goal. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um, yeah, that was horrible. Um, Scolari, wasn't it? Yeah. Who um, had England's number a couple of times. Um, and, you know, let's not forget, really good Portugal team as well. Um, you know, it was always going to be a very, very close run thing. And I think maybe when, again, we look back on that in in this sort of nostalgic way, we're looking back on 96, maybe we'll say that's one that really did get away. But, yeah, penalties again, <laughs> enough already.
1: Yeah, exactly. Um Well, at least you won a penalty at the last tournament that you were in in uh, yes, the well, World Cup. Yeah, that was
0: amazing, wasn't it? I mean... um Again, going, going the distance, the, the nerves. I, I don't think I can remember tension quite like that Columbia game. Um, that was extraordinary. And then to, to win the penalty so convincingly. Um, yeah, amazing. And you know, I, Again, I look back at that now um, with an extra sort of twang of nostalgia because, again, I was watching that game in an absolutely packed pub in central London and it just feels so unthinkable now to be in a a a situation like that where you can't even move because everyone's just packed together so tightly um pre-covid um we, we we still feel a world away from that sort of environment but um yeah great night that was really great night
1: Yeah, you play very well. I mean, especially given the fact you lost the last minute goal and you thought, oh, have we Yeah, exactly. So, no, it's a great nerve. And um, given what happened in Euro 2016 as well, going out to Iceland, um, Mm. no, that must have been one of the. Apart from obviously missing out in Euro 2008 when Steve McLaren decided I don't want to get my suit wet. um, Euro 2016 was a real low point for England because going out to Iceland, no disrespect to Iceland, were very good, but. That was a, a real watershed moment where England realised, like, we've hit rock bottom here. Things need to change. Yeah,
0: it was, um, it was a shambles, wasn't it, really? I, I don't think anyone involved could ever defend that performance because the, the manner in which England conceded those goals was just unforgivable. We knew about the long throws. you know, We knew about the long, the long balls from the back. We knew that was coming. Um, and we just completely fell into the trap um, so yeah I mean to, to have that start and then to to lose the game um, there was only one way for Roy Hodgson to go after that wasn't there and of course it was all a very it, it just felt a very unpleasant way for him to go in the end with that awkward press conference and
3: mm-hmm.
0: um, him saying he didn't want to be there and didn't understand why he was there and yeah, it was all a real low point that was. It, it, again, it just felt like such a waste, that tournament, because um, in, in many ways, if you get past the Iceland game, it kind of opened up a little bit, and um, yeah, I, I mean, I covered that tournament for Talk Sport, and uh, that really was just uh, an absolute shock of the way that all unfolded. Very, very sad.
1: Yeah, it definitely was from um, your point of view, but I mean, Gareth Southgate, to be fair, um, over time, has really stepped into the role. I mean, he didn't go in with a great management CV, but he stepped in that England Nobles and it's worked out real well. It just shows that some you, people. he' still
0: got to um, he's, he's still got to win a lot of England fans over, John. You know, mm-hmm. if you, it, it's interesting because I think they see him as quite circumspect and pragmatic, and we're going into a tournament here where we've suddenly got this huge surfeit of really creative attacking midfielders and the jury's out on how he's going to play and how he's going to use them and how many of them he's going to use. And of course, there's a lot of England fans that really want him to take the handbrake off and say, let's go all guns blazing into this tournament and and blow the opposition away. Um, And of course, you know, he he took us to the semifinal of a world cup, not playing like that you know you know being more as I say um, circumspect and, and, and understanding tournament football and saying you know let's just make sure we don't concede first and then go and look to to hurt the opposition so you know what what I find interesting is that we went into that World Cup not knowing really the system that England were going to play we didn't know if they were going to have a back three or a back four. Um, and we go into this tournament in a very similar situation because he's played both um, since the World Cup. And I couldn't honestly tell you what, how he's going to go into that first game. Is it going to be three at the back or four? If I had to guess now, I'd say it would be a back four. But um, the reality is we don't know because he, he likes to mix it up. And only he knows at the moment what system he's going to, to opt for. And how many attacking midfielders is he going to have? Is he going to play with a learned striker and three behind? Or is he going to go 4-3-3 and have two wide? Um, So, I don't know. But he's certainly got incredible options.
1: He certainly has. And the thing is, I mean, you're saying that he goes between the three and the four. That just shows a flexible manager for me. That, you know, he's willing to... He's not... He's not um, pick-headed enough to say, all oh, right, i right, this is the way we're playing, we're sticking with it. Because um, Steve Clark's the same. You know, In that Israel game yeah. that we were playing last month, we weren't playing well with the three, we were one down at half-time. He didn't just say, we're sticking with three, this is how we play. He says, no, let's change to four and see how it works sitting half. And it worked for us, we've got to draw out the game, possibly could have won it. But you know, again, does this fall it's down to the not burden? not criticism of Gareth at all, by the
0: way. You know, you're know, you absolutely right, yeah. it does, change like, What I'm saying is, with, with that World Cup, I can't, I could never remember a tournament going into it where we didn't know how England were going to play, mm-hmm. um, and, and and it's the same situation now. And as, you know, it keeps the opposition guessing as well. Of course, mm-hmm. are we going to play Carl Walker as a right back as we did um, during the the three uh, games in March, or are we going to play him on the right of the back three as we did in the World Cup? We just don't know. Um, it's it's going to be fascinating to see. Um you know just just trying to work out the squad and I had a go knowing I was going to be doing this and um and obviously I mentioned at the start the extra three players it makes it very very interesting just trying to figure out who's going to benefit from that and and, uh, and who isn't um and obviously we've got injury question marks as well over you know really important players like um like Henderson, Grealish, Harry Kane's only just come back. Um, so, you know, there's, all, there's, there's a whole load of questions which um, are going to need answering over the next few weeks. And, you know, Gareth Southgate will want these players to be back involved for the run-in so that they're not going into a tournament um, on the back of not playing.
1: Yeah, um, some kid happened to Mason Mount and uh, Raheem Sterling, yeah. um, <laughs> it's obviously... Well, bit- yeah, I mean, again,
0: Sterling, another one who's had plenty of criticism recently, hasn't he? Because his form kind of dipped. Um, and, it, you know, it dipped from up here to sort of mm-hmm. there. It's not like he, he fell off a cliff, but we have yeah. such high expectations of Raheem Sterling now that when he had a bit of a, a dip in form, um, you know, he gets criticised. Whereas we saw in the, in the League Cup final that he, you know, he certainly was getting back to his best for the end of the season. So, and you know, Mason Mount, I think every chance of being player of the season at Chelsea, um, and you know, now looks to me to be one of the best finishers in the England squad. So, another one who gets lots of criticism, um, and for me, just personally, I find it ridiculous and totally undeserved but he still gets it and he gets it from Chelsea fans as well because they've sort of seen him as a Frank Lampard favourite um, who got special treatment. I Listen, I've covered loads of Chelsea games and I've never seen him have a bad match. So it feels like he's got some standards to surpass, which others don't have to. Mm-hmm. Um, and it just doesn't seem very fair to me, but there we go.
1: I mean, football fans can be fickle, but how much of this yeah. do you think is that, I mean, I, th- I know the media's calmed down for a while on the whole England expects that they used to um, drum up, but do you think fans still have a, um, an element of that? That, um, you know, especially if that's a home tournament, uh, essential home tournament for you guys as well, that there's an expectation that England should be doing better than a semi-final?
0: Well, particularly since, you know, the, the, some of the uh, grounds changed. I mean, England will play all three of their group games at Wembley, mm-hmm. If they win the group, they'll then play the last sixteen at Wembley. Obviously, their quarter final won't be, um, but then the semi final and the final at Wembley as well, if they get that far. So you're right; it may as well be a home tournament. Um, I think going into the last World Cup, a lot of fans had really dialed down the expectation levels because tournament after tournament, they'd kind of um, they had their hopes you know, dashed. But obviously, getting to the semi-final of the World Cup, it's kind of dialed it up again. And and like I say, I think the squad that goes into this tournament will be better than mm. than the squad from two years ago um, because of the you know the young talent that's come through, like you know Jude Bellingham, like Phil Foden, like Declan Rice, etc. Um, etc. Et I, I I think it's going to be a, a much better squad actually. Um, so I think it's inevitable that the expectations are going to be through plus you look at the odds as i did before this podcast england and france joint favorites 5 to 1 yeah um, france being joint favorites because they're world champions england because they're essentially hosting the thing belgium who are the world number ones a <laughs> 6 to 1 really? um, germany sevens spain and portugal eights italy 11 dutch 12 to 1 and then you're right out to Croatia at 33 to one, who of course got to the World Cup final. Um, and then the rank outsiders, you've got Finland, Hungary, North Macedonia, there at 500. So um, again, that's not going to do anything to dial down expectations, is it? If you, if England, the joint favourites, um, rightly or wrongly, I think there's going to be a lot of money going on them.
1: See, it's just my personal opinion, I think Belgium are going to win it this year, I mean they've got um, I think they've got a supremely talented squad who are all got so many caps between them now they're still um, at a decent age, I think they've learned a lot from previous tournaments as well I don't write off a team like France who are obviously world champions and I predicted they win the World Cup last time um, I think England might be there or thereabouts I think Italy are looking strong, Germany for me are looking dodgy, you know especially when you lose 2-1 at home in Macedonia but that's just my personal thoughts.
0: Yeah. I mean, I, th- I agree with you on Belgium. I think the fact that so many of their team play in England <laughs> is, is also a help. Wembley won't be anything new to them, will it? No. Um, you're right. I mean, I, you can't look past them because they're the number one team in the world and, um, you know, they're great to watch, brilliant to watch, aren't they? And they, yeah. the talent, not just in the first team, but, you know, throughout the whole squad speaks mm-hmm. for itself, which is why they're. You know, second favourite. Um, I agree with you. It's interesting that Spain, Portugal, and Italy are behind Germany in the in the betting. I mean, it can all change, obviously, yeah. and it will change. But um yeah, as I say, England five to one. I mean, that's short. That's very short.
1: Yeah, yeah. I mean, Germany's going through a bit of a transitional phase uh, phase just now, so that's right. why well, although. We know that saying them um, never write off the Germans. Um, but going on to Group D, um, so obviously it's um, England, Croatia, Czech Republic and Scotland. Um, what's your thoughts in that group? It's one that you guys, I'd imagine, would just be saying, expecting tops. Well, although Croatia did beat you two years or three years ago, they are a yeah. little bit older than they were now in England, I think, are learning a bit more.
0: Yeah, I mean, Czech Republic, obviously we met them in qualifying. Um, 5-0 at Wembley. If I remember rightly, um, Sterling hat-trick, wasn't it? Mm-hmm. Um, although, as you say, um, lost 2-1 away. And what was a bit of a surprise? Um, Croatia, yeah, I mean, we played them actually three times in 2018, as well as in the World Cup semi-final. We played I them in the Nations, Nations League. 0-0 mm-hmm. um, away and 2-1 um, and at home. You know, they're all very, very tight games. Um, in fact, England came from behind, didn't they? Um to win. It was uh, Jesse Lingard. Interesting, Jesse Lingard. We talked about him there, and suddenly, right back in form again, and looking odds-on to be to back in the squad. Um, Harry Kane, I think, got the winner, didn't he? So, mm-hmm. for me, those games look tight, and you never know. Particularly the Croatia one. I mean, that that could be the key game in the group in many respects. Um, I think they'd expect to beat the Czech Republic at Wembley. Yeah. Um, and and Scotland, well, I mean, it's just one of those crazy fixtures which doesn't happen often enough for me. Um, I saw that it's 125th meeting. Um, it will be when when they do meet at Wembley. Um, I looked at the last 11 meetings, and Scotland have only won one of them. And of course, it didn't really count for anything because it was that playoff where um, it was Don Hutchison, wasn't it? Mm-hmm. I mean, yeah. um, it didn't count for anything in the end. Um, Just keep rubbing it in, thanks Yeah, I'm, I'm enjoying this uh, <laughs> um, And obviously you know, we had the meetings in qualifying for the last World Cup as well with that incredible game at Hamden where, you know
1: I was there and in, the as soon as um, the second goal went in from Lee Griffiths I said to him, mate England's going to get any closer here
0: yeah, Well, there you go um, I, That's not what I was saying um, That I mean, That was one of the most incredible finishes to a game, wasn't it? To, for Lee Griffith to score two free kicks like that within three minutes of each other um, well, well, uh, it was stoppage time wasn't it the second one I
1: think, yeah I think it, was, it was like 91 yeah. minutes I think then England scored in 93 or 94, yeah. and 94 because of a bad shirt arm strong pass and then we didn't defend the ball that came in from Sterling that's
0: right but you know for 80 minutes it wasn't a classic was it oh. That um, no, was very And just that incredible finish. So you know, if we get something like that in uh, in a major tournament, then bring it on. Um, and obviously, um, it was fairly comfortable at Wembley, wasn't it? Three three nil. Mm-hmm. I mean, I think the fact that it's at Wembley and there's going to be fans, it yeah. definitely is in England's favour, isn't it? Because yeah. The record, the record there on the Gareth Southgate is brilliant.
1: Yeah, well, you you have the better um, better squad, but you just never known an no, um, eleven eleven game. It's a one-off game. You know, no, one off game. No, one off game
0: against the old enemy. I mean, yeah. uh, anything can happen.
1: Yeah, we we've got nothing to lose really in that game. Um, the the big games for us are the other two. Um, yeah. England game almost a free hit from our point of view. But what a free hit it would be if we managed to get a result. But we'll wait and see. Mm-hmm. Um, so um, I'll I'll wrap up very quickly. Um, so who who do you think of the? Um, If you were to put yourself in Gareth Southgate's shoes, what would your start line-up be for the first game?
0: I mean, that is really, really tough. Um, You know, there's so many unanswered questions. I mean, I think he's going to go with Pickford in goal. Mm -hmm. Um, The the question is, what would I go with and what do I think Gareth Southgate's going to go with? And I suspect they're probably quite different things. Yeah. And I'm, put, I'm putting myself in Gareth Southgate's yeah. shoes. I think he'll go with Pickford because he likes to play out from the back,
3: mm-hmm.
0: um, and I think he's he views him as the best option. Even though for me, um, Pope's done brilliantly. Um, yeah. Of course, he you know he kept clean sheets, um, did really well in those uh, three games against San Marino, Albania, and uh, Poland in March. Um, so yeah that that that's a tough call but I think he will go with Pickford. I think he probably will go with the back four and I think he'll probably play Walker um at right back. That, that's what he did during the March internationals. Um and you know Carl Walker kind of speaks for itself now seven major trophies since his move from from Spurs to Manchester City. I think he I think he deserves to be there. It'll be chill at left back. Yeah. I think he's um he's made himself number one now. In the um, in the pecking order, um, brilliant solo goal in the tail end of the Champions League against Porto. I think he's you know for Chelsea he's moved ahead of the, uh, Alonso in the pecking order, so that kind of speaks for itself. Um, I think it would be Stones and Maguire at centre back. Um, and again, I'm not sure every England fan would choose those two, but I think it's inevitable. Um, you know. Um, I looked at uh, Harry Maguire and I saw, I think what England fans don't always appreciate is his, his leadership qualities. And I think when we've had empty stadiums, you've got a really good idea of just how vocal he is because he's quite a softly spoken guy. Um, but there was a match towards the end of the season, uh, that, that goalless draw against Leeds. And you saw him berating Fred and um, mm-hmm. having a pop-up teammates, and, and really you know, make, marshalling that back four. And, um, I think that's that's a side to him that I think Gareth Southgate really really likes. So I think mm-hmm. I think that back four is if it is a back four I think that's kind of set in stone and it's then a question of what he does ahead of that and he does he does like 433. Um mm-hmm. I think a lot of fans would like him to maybe have a 4-2-3-1 and play three attacking midfielders mm-hmm. because of the you know the embarrassment of riches he's got in that department but I don't think he will. Um you know, he'll want Jordan Henderson to be fit again. Um, he'll be desperate to get him back playing um, so that he's available to, to start because, you know, he's part of the leadership team for England as well as being a crucial member of, of the midfield. Very
1: underappreciated player.
0: Oh, massively. Yeah, totally. Um, he'll probably want Declan Rice. As well. I think he's an automatic starter if he's fit. Obviously, he's had his knee injury problems as well. Mm -hmm. Um, but I think he has to be he has to be in there. Um, and I think that third midfielder is an interesting one. Does he go with someone a little bit more um attack-minded? Does he play Mason Mount there or does he play him as one of the front three? (sighs) I mean, your guess is as good as mine. You know (laughs) Harry Kane's gonna be the center forward, yeah. Um the, the, the question is over Grealish, is he going to be back in time? Is he going to be fully available? I think England fans would love to see him start on the left. I mean, I've, I've covered a lot of Villa this season, John, and, um, you know, he's just lit up so many games. Um, and particularly watching him live, you just get an idea of, you know, the, the ball looks like it's tied to his foot half the time. And the, the way he draws fouls is absolutely invaluable at international level. Mm-hmm. So, whether he does or not, you know, what we've seen from Gareth Southgate is a reluctance to play him. I don't know if he sees him as a bit of a maverick or a luxury player. Um, that's that's a, a really interesting call. Um, does Jude Bellingham get in? I mean, he's been awesome, hasn't he?
3: Mm-hmm. Uh, over
0: in Germany. Um, absolutely fantastic in the Champions League against Manchester City. Yeah. Um, and you know, he he might get a nod if, if one of Henderson or Rice isn't available. But otherwise, I just probably see him on the bench. Maybe the next World Cup you'll see Bellingham starting. Um, and of course, the other one who I think has got to start is Foden, because yeah. he's the closest thing to Gaza that we've got. Um, I think he's been absolutely astonishing, particularly in the second half. You'll be
1: young for the other thing, I think that's oh, the day.
0: I mean, it's nailed on. I mean one of the greatest talents we've seen. It's, it's that simple. And you know, Pep Guardiola has said it all. He's a gift to Manchester City. Mm-hmm. You know the, the Stockport Iniesta, as they call him. Um, I, I just think he's absolutely out of this world. And, there's, and there is the same buzz around Fogan that there was around gigs coming through at United and Gaza coming through at Spurs. Mm-hmm. It, it, it really feels like that to me. And I hate to put that pressure on a young player, but... I can't deny the buzz, you know? So he's, he's got to start for me. I don't know if Gareth Southgate feels the same way, um, but for me, he's done enough. The, the, another one is who's kind of overlooked a little bit is Sancho, because he obviously yeah. can come back from injury. Um, and a lot of the pundits haven't even had him in their squad. Um, so let's see. I mean, he's had, uh, he's had an outstanding season for yeah. Um, But whether he's in Southgate's thinking as a starter or someone who's just going to be on the fringe of the squad. I'm really not sure.
1: Yeah, and, and just to wrap this up, yeah, um, so it's arguably your best chance since Italian 1996 to win something. Yeah. Do you think yeah. England will win the Euro 2020 or
0: delayed Euro well, 2020? All I can say is the, 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 the stars have aligned a little bit because of the Wembley thing um having particularly having the last 16 game as a possibility if they win the group i mean that just feels like a real gift for england because i do think they will top the group um beyond that i think i think what's going to be interesting is the quarterfinal because um i think there's every chance that it could be in italy if they if they get that far um and of course they've got the carrot dangling in front of them that the, the semi-final and the finals back at wembley so um Do I think they're going to win it? well no i don't because i 'm a pessimistic England fan by nature um and i 've had my heart broken so many times in major tournaments um but I think they've got a wonderful opportunity um at, you know as good a chance as they've had in many many a year um and I look at the squad and just think if if, if you can get a starting eleven. Um, if, you, if you can't get a starting 11th from that, which is capable of taking on everyone in that tournament, then you're doing something wrong. And I think there's just this nagging worry amongst some England fans that, like I said earlier, the handbrake's going to be on a little bit and we're not going to see the best of some of these attacking players. I might be completely wrong and doing Garrett Southgate a huge injustice because, you know, his record is brilliant. And you can't take that away from him. But I think he is naturally quite cautious. Um, and it'd be interesting to see, you know, a, a different manager might set them up in a totally different way. So, and, I, and again, it, a lot relies on the fitness of those key players, Harry Kane, etc. So I'm not going to say they're going to win it, but I think they've got a really, really good chance. Better yeah. than Scotland.
1: <laughs> well you might get you might get to the final but you'll lose to Scotland the penalties. That would be great.
3: Thanks
1: very much for your time, Gary. It's been a pleasure. Enjoy the tournament when it comes. Stay still. This final part of the Euro 2020 media special, I'm delighted to be joined by last year's sports news writer of the year, Scottish Daily Mail sports writer Stephen McGowan. Stephen, welcome along to the podcast. How
4: are you tonight? Yeah, good, John. Thanks for having me. Nice of you to ask me.
1: Yeah, no, it's a, um, I wasn't going to ask you anyone higher than yourself, to be perfectly honest. honest. Um, it's an absolute honour to have you on um, the show. So, yeah, um, we're also talking oh, about... Shucks. <laughs> You must hear that all the time. <laughs>
4: no, <laughs> um, no, I know we don't. <laughs>
1: yeah, but um, in terms of um, obviously the reason we've got you on is to talk about Scotland the upcoming um, European Championships first in 20 years. We've had to say something like that. It's um, it's incredible, isn't it, man?
4: Yeah, I don't think any of us could have imagined when the night we lost 3-0 in the the final game of France ninety eight, there would be 23 years before we be back here again and. It's a big thing, you know, I mean, it's funny, I only went into the national newspapers the year after that, 1999.
1: So it's your fault we haven't I'm, qualified then.
4: Yeah, I'm a Jonah, <laughs> I'm an absolute Jonah. But it's, it's just astonishing that, you know, I've, I've been in journalism 30 years, sports journalism 30 years, and, oh, wait, well, I was a bit a weight developer going into national papers, but I mean, the, the idea that I've gone through two decades of seeing Scotland at a major finals is incredible. And it's a big thing, but it's so sad as well because it's not going to be normal. Because there will be these restrictions in the numbers of media who can go in. Fans, there'll be restrictions in the fans. There'll be a big bun fight for who gets tickets. And a bit, I suppose, you know, obviously, have won things this year as well. Rangers or whoever all feel that it's, it's not being quite the kind of the celebration of football you would like it to be. And the uh, we just have to make the best of it, and I, I'm sure, as being Scotland, we will. Because uh, I don't think it's anything we'd ever take for granted again. That's for sure.
1: Yeah, without a doubt. I mean, this has been a a year that none of us will ever forget. Um, you know, the past twelve months, everything everything's um, just went... <laughs> That's up basically, <laughs> Excuse, um, but it's just been um, a testing time, but at least there's like the end of the tunnel and the fact that it wasn't at the start of the year, it wasn't looking like there was going to be any fans at all at these Euros. So the fact that there is 25%, all right, it's not 100%, but it's something and it gives you a wee bit of hope that things are starting to progress.
4: It's a big step back to normality, isn't it? I think yeah. we, we really had to feel that. I, I I think it would be hard to describe just how deflating it would have been for everybody if we'd been one of the nations who'd been like Ireland who'd be forced to pull out. Mm. Um, it would just have been a real kick in the guts because I waited so long for this. We were looking forward to. Yeah, you're right. Twelve thousand. It's not fifty-two thousand. It's not. It's not the Corries on the pitch. Or Amy McDonald's, but you know we 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 will make the best of it. You know and. You know, I wonder whether we'll even be in a position to get a fan zone in George Square and you know what the position will be with fans being able to watch it in pubs. Um, you know, we're hoping we'll be back to something approaching our semi-normality by then. Um, but, oh, course so we know how to throw a party. I'm sure we'll improvise.
1: Yes, I'm sure we will. I'm just looking forward to having someone around the house to watch the football. You know, I didn't get the chance to do that yeah. when we played Serbia. We were all in our own living rooms <laughs> doing that. Well... Yeah. You weren't. You were one of the, well, you're yeah. one of only two that I know that um, went over to Serbia, because um, Luke Shanley of Sky Sports. I uh, definitely yeah. know was over there.
4: What there. Yeah, there were five journalists. It was uh, Luke Shanley, uh, Chris McGlock at the BBC. The mm-hmm. thing guys and myself, Michael Grant of the Times, Robert Grave of the Sun. So there were five Scottish journalists in there. Yeah, there was there was one Scottish fan who was standing beside Chris McGlock, and I, I didn't really speak to him. Um, but it was a, it, I think there was just this enormous feeling of, my God, this is a privilege, you know. Um, and it, it, it was amazing because, listen, we've we've all had occasions where you can in kind the of press box, the quorum, this kind of pole-faced, we must keep our kind of objective stance, just flies mm-hmm. out the window. It happened, the 2-2 game against England, when we Griffiths stuck those 2-3 kicks in. There's journalists standing up, hugging each other in the press box, Um, And it certainly happened in Serbia. And it was was even more difficult in Serbia because of the the social distancing thing. But it was such a night of fluctuating emotions because, um, you know, you're cheering when Scotland score, Ryan Christie sticks in, all these kind of glowering Serbian war wards wards around you, you know, really very grim-faced Serbian journalists looking at you with daggers. And then the equities. And there's seconds to go. And, you know, from a generality point of view as well, it's not just the, the kind of emotion of Scotland, you're thinking about rewrites as well, because, you know, you're thinking, you know, from, from our professional perspective, all you really want is an easy night where you, you know, Scotland win two or three nothing, they've tied the game up by half time, you've got your match report written for the final whistle, you press send, you go into the quotes, everyone goes and has a beer. This is becoming a nightmare. You know, they equalize the last bit of, of normal time, goes to extra time flying by the seat of the pants at times. you get David Marshall pulling off fantastic fingertip saves. And everything goes to pay. So let's be honest. I think we're all thinking this is another Scottish tragedy. I was this saying that another... in eight minutes, Stephen. <laughs> oh, this is... yeah, exactly. Exactly. it bit of that look about it. This is Beth waiting to happen again. You know, if the deed were to be done, let it be done quickly. Just kill us off quickly. And I think, you know, th- and it, one of the, the, the weird things about Krause not being in, John, is that Everything, every goal that's scored comes of an air of disbelief and kind of like checking yourself. Because often you, you get initial impression is confirmed by a crowd roaring. Whereas in a silent stadium, it's just kind of a smattering of shouts. So you're kind of like, wait, wait, was it really a goal scored? So David Marshall saves that penalty. You're like, pain down, mouth opened. Do we jump up? Do we celebrate? And of course, David Marshall was like that himself, wasn't he? Mm-hmm. Yeah. And you know that iconic image when he gets up and he looks at the referee and his teammates run towards him. And I must have been away. I ran and I gave Bob a a wee hug. Don't tell Nicholas Sturgeon or Jason Leach, but um, yeah, it was a nightmare. The chorum flew out the window, and I think overall what you had at the end was just a feeling of massive privilege you know, really huge privilege that you were there. Um, you know, I, I've actually still got a program from the game. And I must try and do something charitable with it for a gown hospice or something nearby where I live. But, you know, probably got a bit of a collector's item there from a, a programme from the night Scotland qualified for the first and twenty three in 23 years. It was fantastic.
1: Yeah, David Marshall is saying that, and it will be gold dust. <laughs> I think you're well, good Well, exactly, <laughs>
4: Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, as, as I say, I, I, I'm not after personal gain or profit. But I would, yeah, I was thinking David Marshall and Steve Steve all. but of course, you've got to get close enough to David Marshall and Steve Clark to get an autograph. And mm. uh, even for journalists these days, that's not easy. So, um, yeah, I really must get into doing something with it shortly.
1: Yeah, hopefully that'll um, that'll all change um, sooner rather than later. Um, that you mm. can get some form of normality back. How long that'll be, I don't know. But um yeah. you were there in Serbia. Um, was, you know, we're not at all jealous of um, Stephen sitting here. Well, 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 i tell you, it
4: was funny, though, because normally, you know, after that, you go to the pub and you have a beer and you would have a few celebratory sherbets. And that night, we went back to an empty hotel in downtown Belgrade. And the reception sold cans of lager. And the three print guys we basically got three or four I sat socially distanced in the big lounge upstairs in darkness. You know, we kept a distance well away from each other. We weren't really supposed to be there, but we were, we're sitting well apart. But, you know, you're just thinking, we can't, we can't let this pass without some kind of, you know, very much responsible celebration as best we could, you know. So, so we're sitting kind of three or four metres apart, just sitting kind of shouting at each other across the lounge, um, you know. But it was, it was a serial location in all kinds of ways.
1: Yeah, without a doubt. I mean, well, so you guys obviously didn't do what the team did that night. You know, any social distance well, no. went completely out well, the window.
4: Yeah.
1: I, um, I think they, they were too busy them, making Wakefield in the put- uh, backer famous um, again. So
4: yeah, well, that's, uh, that, that, that's the thing. Even you know, even when it was saying that I was thinking, God, should I admit this? But I think it was just a night where so many people lost their shape because it was just fast emotion. You know, you look at Ryan Christie with tears in his eyes, mm. and we were all Ryan Christie that night. We all felt the way Ryan Christie felt. It was just you know, even Sir Alex Ferguson speaking in the, the other day there to the SAFA, just saying that you know, the a Furious, the great kind of kind of volcanic colossus of Scottish football with tears in his eyes. So that tells you that there wasn't a dry eye in the house. I think we all had something in our throat that night. I think we we're all wiping something from our eye. And it was okay. It was allowed because I think we all felt the same.
1: Yeah, I was trying. I was um trying to celebrate and not wake the kids up at the same time. <laughs> that think oh. is one of my kids are in bed. You know, I, I was actually like jumping yeah. around the room, but not screaming and not shouting. I was trying try to keep. it was like quiet. Yeah. Yes, I was. Shouting. But my wife still texts me to say, "Has there um has there been an earthquake of Scotland gone through?"
4: <laughs> so. but, but you know, this is this is this is another sad thing about it, isn't it? You know, because if, if you if you I wrote about this with my father dying to bring, some of your greatest early memories for your parents are jumping around celebrating goals at football. Mm-hmm. You know, your dad grabbing you. You know, probably the only time I ever hugged my dad in my life was when it was after goals at football. You know, I remember Dean in the Cup Winners' Cup in 83 and Archie Gemmell's goal and you know, George McCluskey scoring for Celtic against Ajax in 82 and, you know, just, just just games like that where whenever Scottish teams did something special, it didn't matter who the team was... He jumped about you went a bit mental. You know, the cat ran for a cover under the sofa. And that's something that's been lost to the young generation as well. You know, your kids should have been up that night. You know, I don't presume to know what age you are, John, but it should be a great memory for a kid that you're know, rediscovering the national team again and actually discovering that Scotland can win, that we can be relevant in a world stage again because there's an entire generation who've grown up who can drink, who can vote, who can get married, who can be parents, who've never seen Scotland... A major international finals that's the significance of this.
1: The last time that we were in a major finals, I was one year away from being able to legally drink. I'm now 40, yeah. um, so I can legally drink at <laughs> this one if I want to. Yeah, you, <laughs> yeah. I
4: think you can, you can have a beer this time, I think. Yeah, you'll
1: be. I don't yeah. think anyone will check you for ID. Uh, I think no, I, don't, I, I wish they did they make me feel a bit younger, Stephen. But <laughs> <laughs> and you know, over those 23 years, as we've said, I mean, there's been a couple of near misses, and there's also been you know, some really horrendous times like you know when you think about four 0 in Norway, Boosgate, um some of the um the six 0 against Holland after um, being one up in the Craig Levine era. Um and that's just all, well it doesn't completely make it go away but just um you know nice to put that in the um back in the dustbin somewhere. Yeah.
4: Well, I mean listen I am a bit older than you I'm fifty fifty one this year. And I don't think when I was growing up how fortunate we were. You know I mean? I, I barely remember 78 with vague memories of Archie Gemmell mm-hmm. and, and uh, Holland. Was a Johnny Red, was it? Scoring that goal and all this out. 82, probably the first World Cup where I was really conscious of the whole thing as an event.
3: Mm-hmm.
4: But I remember going to uh, to watch the scotland Brazil game in a scout hut in Fairmont where I went to primary school. 114th Lindburn scout hut in Lindburn Road and we, we were sitting round and Two rows of seats watching Dave Neri topo poke the ball into the top corner. And what uh, has as, he has <laughs> people exactly as people famously said, he just made them angry. You know, and that was that was the, 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 for me, that was still my favorite Brazil team of all time with Socrates, Zico and Eder and Falcao. and you know, they were just swaggering, they were everything but Brazil was supposed to be. And when they get knocked out by Italy, Paolo Rossi's hat trick in the quarterfinals. I think it was a, a day of national mourning, even in Scotland. Um, you know, and, and, and then it was a generation where we went to, to do Mexico in '86, Italia '90, missed out in ninety four, oh, go back to France ninety eight, you know, and it, it, we took it for granted, didn't we?
3: Mm-hmm.
4: And I don't think we could as I said, go back to where we started. I don't think we could have imagined it would be so long before we'd be back at the top table again. And it's why we have to save it.
1: Oh, without a doubt. I mean, um, and those um, qualifications, my first was Italian 90. And as you say, we then qualified for Euro Next 2, which was the first one in um, the Euros. Obviously, Missed F4, got to Euro Next 6 and uh, got to France Next. So that was four at the first five tournaments. Um, yeah. And you just, so when we qualified, it was, in my mind, it was pretty much expected. Whereas this one, yeah. you really savoured because it had been so long. You could just feel the relief of uh, of the nation at that moment in time.
4: Yeah, but you know, I mean, it's funny I said I had a quite a unique insight into France 98 um, because I think the squad was named, I, I was working for Celtic's Club magazine for the 18 months, between 98, end of 99, and the squad was named pretty much the day after Celtic stopped Rangers running 10 in a row, and they were flying to Lisbon for a demonstration game where Vim Janssen resigned as Celtic manager and great acrimony in the uh, Parksia Hotel in Esterio. But the squad was named in Heathrow Airport when the squad were when Celtic were flying over there or flying back. I can't remember which. And Darren Jackson and Tosh McKinley, when they were in the squad when we were walking through a kind of, you know, from one terminal to the other at Heathrow. And I always remember being behind the scene them dancing, cavorting, hugging each other front of all these strangers in an airport going absolutely whoopie-woo in the middle of the airport because they'd made the Scotland World Cup squad. And it was great to see what it really meant to players because people think it, it doesn't really mean much. And by a strange quirky coincidence, they, they, they got to the departure lounge and Ali McCoy was there. I think he must have been doing a question of sport duty. And he just missed out on the squad. And they were all sitting, kind of like chatting away about it, you know, and probably having their own various views on it. But even then, I think you were aware and you were conscious with no harm to the players I've mentioned, Silver or single name that the quality of player was diminishing.
3: Mm-hmm.
4: We didn't have Willie Millers and Alec McLeishers anymore. We no. didn't have Archie Gemmels. We didn't have Kenny Dalglishers or Graham Cunesses. You know, we did have Dan Jacksons. We had Tam Boyds. You know, we had mm-hmm. Colin Calderwoods. All excellent players by today's standards, but by the standards of the really great Scotland teams of the past, you could see that, for want of a better phrase the backside was starting to
1: fall out of the empire. Yeah, I think that's, um, that's probably a fair comment. Alan McCoy should have went to that World Cup, but and I think Craig Brown, yeah. to be fair, him does pretty much um, admit he should have took him, but that's a, another yeah. story for another day. Um, so yeah. you also touched on one of the reasons why we haven't qualified in so long. What other reasons would you put down to the fact that um, it's taken 23 years? I mean, obviously there's been the evolution of other countries as well.
4: Yeah, I think the biggest reason really was the the collapse of the Soviet bloc. Really, I think this is a this is something which is often overlooked for our club sides and for the national teams as well. If you look at it in the old days, you when know, Scotland just to reach, qualify for World Cups had been qualifying groups of three or four teams. It'd be Norway and Czechoslovakia, you know, or it would be Wales and two or three others. It'd be you know they, were, they were just far the 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 kind of barrier you had to reach is far more. Whereas since then, we've added in, you know, Russia, Ukraine, Estonia, Georgia. I mean, nothing has killed us more than the addition of Georgia to the international Mm -hmm. football roster. In the past, they were all rolled into one Soviet Union or, you know, the um, um, USSR team, you know, such as the one we played in 1982. Um, Mm -hmm. And it's mind-blowing. And I I think just, you know, the the number of nations went up to, what, 56, 57? All right, there's been additional minnows that we've... Walk to the Estonias, your San Marinos, your, your Faroe Islands. But, you know, these Georgias, these mm-hmm. Ukrainians, these Russias, these, these, these Baltic and kind of mm-hmm. Eastern European nations, like, you know, even even the, the Yugoslavia nations breaking up, you know, where you've got, you know, you've, you've got these Serbia, Montenegro, and so on. Croatia. Just all these hurdles with <laughs> Croatia. Just nations that we didn't really have the all found their independence, which is good for humanity, good for democracy, terrible for Scotland's chances of reaching major international European finals. And of course, the quality of players has diminished as well, going back to, to what we're saying about 98. Although, you look at so many players who never reached a major finals. You, mean, you look at mm-hmm. uh, you know, James McFadden, um, you, know, you look at Darren Fletcher, you know, Gary Caldwell and guys Barry like that. Ferguson. We had good, mm-hmm. Barry Ferguson, yeah. We had good guys. You know, players who played the Celtic Seville team in 2003, players who played in Scotland's, uh, sorry, Rangers, UEFA Cup team in 2008. You know, you're Alan Huttons, you Barry Ferguson, you just say, you're mm-hmm. Jackie McNamara's, you know, you Vab Douglas's. Guys like that who played at a really high level in club football, who never made it to the international finals. So we did have some good players, but I think there was a feeling of hopelessness as well. I think we I think we just got to a point where we couldn't imagine qualifying in again and possibly were a bit mentally weak as well.
1: I would definitely say so. I mean um when when you think about that when, when we beat France twice and then beat Ukraine at home it was a great, it was glorious and then 4 days later we got to Georgia and
4: uh, you know as you say, the box Bar- Bar- falls out uh, it. Uh, yeah, I was in Tbilisi that trip. It was a bad trip, and always, I always remember. I remember eating a bowl of spaghetti the night before and getting food poisoning, and got to the game. And if you remember, Georgia had a seventeen-year-old keeper. I think seventeen mm, and eighteen-year-old yes. keeper. Mm-hmm. They lost some of the key players, and we were dangerously confident. You know, we wasn't rightly so because, as you say, beaten France twice, had beaten Ukraine three-one at Hamden. We're really, you know, we're mixing with Italy and so on. And we were in a good place. You know, you, you had Walter Smith had moved aside. That had been a blow when he went back to the Rangers. Yeah. But Alex McQuish was doing a good job, confident. And then we went to Georgia and we lost 2 0. I think James McFadden did a decent penalty shot, turned down. Yeah, I
1: think so.
4: And I remember coming back that night through the airport, I remember Alex McQuish turning to the journalists and saying, did I get that one wrong, lads? Just a kind of informal moment. I think he was 17. King, he was just footballer right out of the sun that night. Mm-hmm. And it was just a night of contemplation and kind of pensive, of have we blown this? And even then you look at that ridiculous free kick that Italy got at uh, Hamden <sighs> where Alan Hutton, I think, was barged into. can't remember yeah, who it by it was.
3: By yeah.
4: Chiellini, yeah. Chiellini barged into Alan Hutton, an incredible decision with the Spanish referee mm-hmm. gave the decision to Italy from which they scored alright you still had to defend it but I don't think you'll ever get any Scotland fans to not convinced that the Spanish referee was on the take that night so that was the one that really knocked the stuffing out of us because we'd absolutely mixed up with top class nations mm-hmm. really looked apart, part and actually deserved to qualify but then again the mm-hmm. counter to that is if you lose 2-0 in Georgia do you deserve to qualify yeah it's yeah. um, about isn't it
1: for me, the sliding door's moment was the James McFadden miss. Um, if he scores that, Italy are not getting back at it, because we had them on the ropes at that point. We were dominant. The one in sliding the in, it was his
4: sliding into the back post, wasn't it? Yeah. In, he? Yeah,
1: he was a big, wee bit in the stretch, but I think, and James the will probably say himself that he should have scored that play of his ability, but yeah. um, it just it obviously wasn't to be. Um, but thankfully, we don't need to dwell too much in the past now, because... We've put them behind us by qualifying. Just just sum up this, the job that Steve clark has been doing, because uh, he took over in not great circumstances, although with the bank of the playoff, it wasn't going swimmingly. in lane, McLeish's second turn, unfortunately, for him.
4: No, it wasn't. It wasn't. I think the Kazakhstan disaster really um, made the job impossible for Alex McLeish. Yeah. A lot of time for Alex McLeish is at the centre of so many of my finest childhood memories as a supporter. Kind of flame-haired warrior and part of the best central defensive partnership I've ever witnessed, if I'm not being honest. I'm not an Aberdeen supporter, but that Aberdeen team were awesome. But he's but his second spell, I did a piece of him last year where we, we, we met up in advisor to tell him in Glasgow and he talked about what was called the disturbing episode where he, he just forgot a word in a team talk. Mm-hmm. The word just flew out of his head. And he had, he lost his, his kind of moment and he left the room and when word got out of that, he just lost his moral authority over the players. So, after losing to Kazakhstan, things could only get better, but we had to find a pragmatist first and foremost, I think. And if you talk to members of the SFA board about this, and I have done, they'll tell you that they were looking for someone who could exceed the sum of the parts of the team, you know, who could come in and take a group of players that was not the most gifted or blessed of all time. And you could make them more than the summer of their parts, as I say, and that's what Steve Clark was doing at Arnold. He you know, was taking Gary Dickers and Alan Powers and and uh, Stuart Finley's and Stephen O'Donnell's and Daniel Backman's, and he was he was turning them into a team he could qualify for Europe. He went from relegation fodder when he mm-hmm. took over to turning them into European Europa League qualifiers. The first third place finish, I think, it was the nineteen sixties or something. You know, beating Rangers, being a perennial on the side of Celtic. He was far and away the most obvious candidate. But the sacrifice you make for that, and I'm sure Steve Clark and his, his more honest moments would admit, he's not the most abelian character at times. He can be a little he can be a bit doer. He's got a dry sense of humor. we are fortunate enough to be for for lunch in a group of journalists with him and speak to him, you know, off the record. And he does have a dry sense of humor, but he doesn't he doesn't suffer fools. He's never going to indulge in Ali McLeod kind of rabble-rousing. Um, everything will be done in a very low-key, almost underplayed kind of way. So I don't think there's any danger of anyone getting carried away with euphoria before we... There will be no open-top bus trades. We won't be waving goodbye to the team at Hamden. we we'll waving goodbye to the team at Hamden to go to Hamden. Um, so, you know, there'll be none of that this time. But he's done a good job because he has steadied the ship. I think he's, he's fulfilled his first criteria, which... He's made Scotland hard to beat again. You're like in Kazakhstan. We were too easy to beat. We were soft. Um, we, lacked, we lacked resilience. We lacked self-belief. And he's restored a bit of that. Okay, there's now a difficult step to be taken to go from being hard to beat to being a team who you can go out and win. And that's the next stage. But I'm heartened by young players coming through, by Nathan Patterson, by Billy Gilmore, by David Turnbull. Um, you know, you'll get the emergence of Shea Adams. Um, I think we have players now who are going to make us a better team in the fullness of time. You know, even in central defense, we'll get the emergence of two or three younger players, you know, get a plethora of left backs. So I'm hopeful. The, the big question over this finals is: does he stay loyal to the guys who've got me there in the first place? Or does he bow to the pressure to bring about a bit of youth into the squad in the form of a Nathan Patterson? Or a David Turnbull or even a Billy Gilmore. My instinct is that Steve Clark will feel he needs to stay loyal to the guys who got him there. I admire that in a way. I think he'll feel that he will he owes them something because they've given him plenty and he'll repay it. Whether it'll be a price to pay for that against kind of younger, fitter, more mobile teams, time will tell. That's going
1: to be the next big question because we're recording this on the 27th of April, and this is the day where UEFA announced it's the squads increasing from 23 to 26 because of um, obviously the COVID stuff. So, who do you think um, will be the benefactors of um, the fact the squad is increasing? Because it would have been difficult to nail down 23.
4: It would, yeah. I could see Lee Griffiths possibly benefit from that I think, I think so, yeah. I think Lee Griffiths would have been very much borderline. Listen, you could argue Lee Griffiths has no business being anywhere near the squad, given his it's kinda mm-hmm. his foibles this season where he has lacked professionalism and dedication mm-hmm. at times by by the by the account of his own managers. But mm-hmm. you know, I was gonna worry about this the weekend, it didn't quite make the cut. But the point with Lee Griffiths is that if you need an impact player if you're one nil down to the Czech Republic with 14 mm-hmm. minutes to play at Hamden. You need to sniff out a goal, then mm-hmm. he just might be a good guy to have in that situation. You're not asking him to run around to give you 90 minutes of, of dynamism and, and fitness, but he just might sniff out a chance. Mm-hmm. I really would like to see Nathan Patterson in the squad. I would, you know, I mean, we are the problem is to get then drop Liam Palmer. Um, I think Stephen O'Donnell's a certainty and, and deserves to be, because I, I think it Stephen is. O'Donnell gets a bit of a hard, yeah, I think he gets a bum rap for Scotland. I think he does well. He's never badly let us down. I think if we can see these limitations, but I'd like to see Nathan Patterson. I'd like to see Lee Griffiths in there. And David Turnbull's a big shout as well. Um, mm-hmm. But you know, you've got difficult decisions. You know, you've you know you've got Nisbet up front. You've got Lauren Shankland. You know, you've got. I think Shea Adams and Lyndon Dykes are certainties and deservedly yeah. so. Um, midfield, you have so many options. You know, central midfield. So is it a place for a Turnbull or a Billy Gilmore?
1: James yes. Forrest, has um, been, you know, he's went back out the Celtic team after come back in. Does this give him an I opportunity? Think is- are,
4: yeah. I think, yeah, he has to be. Forrest has to be in the team. I think you see how much Celtic have missed him. He just gives you width, he gives you dynamism, he gives you experience, he gives you goals in wide positions as well. Um, you know, Ryan Christie hasn't had the best season. If you go with a kind of four-two-three-one, 1, which I, you know, there's interesting informational things as well because. You know, we've had this kind of three at the back to get Ken Tierney and Andy Robertson in the team, and I understand that. But I just feel that Scotland's resources are best suited to 4 I think we showed in the second half of the Austria game, was it?
1: Israel. Mm-hmm.
4: Israel, sorry, yeah. Israel, absolutely, yeah. With a poor first half, and then he um, changed it. They put Cairn Tierney to left centre-back, put Robertson at left-back, that's another argument as well. continues might be a of left-back than Andrew Robertson at the moment in terms of giving you width and attacking you. So there's really difficult decisions. I'd like to see 4 2 three, one And if you play 4 2 three, one I think James Forrest should be a right-sided man in the free. Um, you know, with Ryan Fraser on the left mm-hmm. uh, and John McGinn as a kind of number 10 behind Adams or Dykes. Uh, and, you know, Ryan Jack, unfortunately, that's a big loss losing that's him. I think he would have been a certainty for that holding midfield but you can have Callum McGregor you can have Scott Whitomany in there you can then choose your central defenders be that Declan Gallica be that you know hopefully touch with Grant Hanley stays fit and Mm -hmm. so on but there's some really there's some real big decisions but you know the good thing for Steve Park is there have been times the Scotland managers really haven't had the luxury of decisions he does
1: yeah, without a doubt, especially in central midfield, you know, that's a blessed position. Oh, yeah. But for as good as we are in central midfield, I don't think there's anyone that does the job that Ryan Jack does. Um like no. McTominy is a, is an excellent midfield player, so is McGregor, but they don't have that um ability to snip out danger like Ryan Jack does and break up the play. Yeah. They're more ball mm. players, box to box players, but um and McTominay was looking good in the back three, I must say, for all I doubted them. But um it's interesting. Yeah, that in it part, looked, it looked- um, options.
4: He, like, he, like, he always be Tom and he in the back, free to to pass the ball out from the back, you know. So rather than just lumping it up the pitch, to actually pass it and, and and move the ball in a kind of coherent fashion, that's what he likes to do. But he's playing so well in midfield for Manchester United, mm. and he really likes Grant Hanley. He's, you know he, I remember we did go for lunch and he was talking really highly about Grant Hanley. He's not had him available, but I think in Steve Clark's eyes, Grant Hanley is his mm. first choice central defender I think if he's available he will play yeah. in that three or in that back four and that would then give him the luxury of releasing McTominay in the absence of Ryan Jack I think that's an no-brainer for me he's just such a nice footballer McTominay and it's a shame to waste him in midfield for me
1: yeah I think he will be in midfield especially now that um, Jack's injured um, the, the, the question yeah. then becomes if we are going to the back three which I suspect we will because um, O'Tierney will be left centre-back that's nailed on I think Hanley will likely be the middle of the three because I think his he's better when he's just defending um, yeah. rather than that, asking him to be a footballer do what you do best, defend because I think Declan Gallagher did well in that position but it's the right centre-back this session for me because Jack Hendry probably has been doing well in Belgium didn't cover himself in glory these um, last qualifiers that's just my personal opinion mind you
4: yeah, no, you're absolutely right. I think, there's, I, think, I think when you talk to Steve Clark, i tell you there's two positions that he's persistent for. I mean, right centre-back and centre-forward. He's taken a big step towards solving the centre-forward problem with Shea Adams, I think. And if Lee Griffiths can get a couple of games under his belt for the end of the season, a couple more goals, I think he'll have options there. Yeah, because there's so many left-footed players. I'd love to see Scott McKenna in the team. I'd really like to see him. But, you know, again, he's left-footed. He's big, he's strong, he's mobile. Mm-hmm. But he's left-footed and like, you say, get Tierney's Hanley, yeah, probably right, centre, sort of right-sided centre-back. Very difficult, isn't it? But again, possibly that's another reason why I think it possibly would go with a back four and just put Hanley as the right-sided centre-back in the four. Maybe Tierney as the left-sided centre-back, but then do you sacrifice height? That's why Steve Clark gets the big bucks and we don't.
1: Exactly, that's why we're talking in Zooms and you're writing um, and uh, he's, yes, picking the, he's picking the teams but uh, at least he showed in that as your game previous managers might have been stubborn with their, their style that's, that's the formation, that's what we're sticking with he was flexible enough to say right, it's not working with the three let's go to the four and we saw the difference Um, so I'd like to think that if we're one down to Czech Republic at Hampden he will make those necessary changes that turn into a 2-1 win I'm not predicting the future, but that would be nice. Um, how do you see the three games going? How do you see your chances um, of progression to the next round? Because that's the next big thing.
4: Honestly, for me, probably not great. You know, I mean, uh, we played a kind of badly affected COVID, uh, COVID affected Czech team over in, uh, Czech, in Czech Republic. We won that, probably in spite of ourselves, actually. At home, they looked a really talented team, Really, really excellent individuals. But that, I would hope, I, I would think that's probably our best chance of winning one, the Czechs in the first game. I think it's important we don't show them too much respect. Just have to go out and just play with aggression, play with intensity. England away, you know, the thought of some of those, you know, you know Foden, uh, Harry Kane, some of the players I'm going to have at our disposal, some of the really excellent young development players. I and mean, I think. This could be England's tournament, really. Um, mm-hmm. They've been developing young, excellent players for quite some time. They're coming to the boil nicely. I would be happy to get away from Wembley with a respectable scoreline. I really would. You know, I'm looking forward to the game immensely, but I, I don't necessarily fancy that situation in the last game. You know, you're up against guys like Waka Modric and so on. I mean, phew, supremely talented players. A nation who consistently punch above their weight. And that's going to be devilishly tough. Um, if we could get a couple of draws happy. I, I think that would be a fairly successful tournament. I don't hold out high hopes of progressing to the second stage. Let's be honest, we never do. But you know what? If you set your sights reasonably cautiously and low, you might be pleasantly surprised. But I don't, you know, I think for us, we're happy to be there. You don't just want to be there to make up the numbers, but we have to enjoy it. There's no point in going into it with a a kind of win it all cost mentality. We just have to savour being back at the top table and use it to build something and hopefully use it as a platform as well for the forthcoming World Cup qualifiers in September.
1: Yeah, exactly. And the way I'm looking at it is look, um, 23 years ago, a lot of fans were moaning that we didn't get past the first round of World Cup again or European Championship again. Then it progressed into right, we're not even getting to playoffs um, to qualify for these tournaments. So I'd rather have this scenario where we're um, at a finals oh, again. Yeah. Of course you want to do well. I mean, we don't want to make up the numbers. We want to progress to the last 16. And with um, three, um, four of the best third place sides getting through, um, You could um, there is an opportunity there, as Portugal showed with three draws and then ended up winning the thing. Yeah. Um, but then yeah. in Italian 90, Scotland were... By their luck, one of the two worst third place sets and missed so and that'll be what we end up doing? No, but no, it'll be very do, difficult.
4: No. It will be, it will be. But we know that. You know, well, I don't think anyone's under any illusions that this is a top quality Scotland team. We're not in Argentina territory here. You know, we're not even in Spain '82 territory. We are realistic about our limitations. I think we're pragmatic, and I think that's a good way to be. You know, we have to keep it real when the reality is. We're playing probably three teams who are better than us in the world rankings, three teams who are better than us technically. And so long as we are realistic about that, then, you know, we should just enjoy it.
1: Yeah, definitely. And with regards to yourself, you also went to um, Serbia. you got high hopes that you'll um, have a pass um, for the the games this summer?
4: Yeah, yeah. I mean, I think journalists are going through, uh, weeping through, uh, burning balls of fire to get accreditation. But um, yes, if you have a priority list which touched with, I hope and think I might my my feature on, I don't know how many journalists each paper will get because we're still restricted in terms of numbers. You know, even though there will be 12,000, there will still be a, a limited number of journalists in the press box. If we get two per publication, I think we'll be happy with that. I think we are still expecting there uh, will be post-match press conferences by Zoom. It's just a far from ideal way to do it. Um, it you know, it's, it's taken a lot of the kind of enjoyment and ease out of the job the last year, as it's taken enjoyment and ease out of life in general. So mm-hmm. we have to try and make the best of a bad situation. But yeah, I mean, for me, I've been saying for a long time, I, I've really craved and coveted watching Scotland in a major international finals. And uh, to get the opportunity to, to do that is a is going to be a huge thrill. And I don't think it's dawned on us yet just how thrilling it's going to be. I don't think it's dawned on a younger generation either what it's going to be like to have their own national team playing at a a huge finals. And I think it will be rejuvenating and galvanising for the nation because, if you remember, John, the the Commonwealth Games in Glasgow, Mm -hmm. the sun shone, the city of Glasgow was alive, the thrill was just magnificent. It made everybody feel better about themselves. You know, and if you just get a wee bit of success on the pitch, I think it would be like a bolt from the blow for Scottish football. And hopefully could create some kind of legacy. Um, I think we're already breeding a lot of better, younger players. I think the, the infrastructure of the game has suffered a bad jolt at the which reaches because of COVID. I think it would be the boost that everybody needs on and off the pitch.
1: Yeah, definitely. Because I think you think of little things like businesses as well. I mean, remember France 98 when, um, you know, you saw merchandise being sold off the shelf. Even the Italy game in 2007, you can get a car flag, a, a Saltar car flag anywhere before that league game in 2007. Yeah, it was crazy. Yeah. So, I mean, you've got the potential for that. That could help boost the economy as well.
4: Well, I don't know how the productivity lines. Uh, the productivity will be in a working from home scenario in the middle of a major international tournament. Yeah. I think I think employers have to be realistic about this, and nobody there's not going to be a job work getting done. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, <laughs> but um, that's just the way it is. And uh, as I say, we just need to enjoy it. We need to enjoy everything about it because yes. it doesn't happen very often. As we've discovered the hard way. Mm-hmm.
1: Exactly, and let's hope that um, this is the first of um, a succession of qualifications, even if it's like every second year to the Euros, which is probably more realistic, but um, but you never know for Qatar 2022. We've got a good team, tough group, but you just never know. Um, fi- final question before we wrap up. Um, I think you alluded to a wee bit, who do you think is going to win the Euros if it's not going to be Scotland?
4: <laughs> I have a truly hideous feeling that this is England's year. I really do. You know. Listen, I mean you you are hard pushed to look beyond Belgium, you know, Roberto that's Martinez, it. I think. Mm-hmm. I think they will be the this will be his last hours, possibly as a Belgian Belgian manager before he returns to club football, possibly in, in Spain's in La Liga. I think that's a bit more likely than Celtic at the moment. Um, so I think it will be his last half for Belgium. And you know, if you look at the generation of players Belgium have, but they've they've kind of underperformed in the absolute uh, the, the the absolute latter stages when you're you're really expecting them to to, to really come to the fore. So whether their golden generations just beginning to tip over the hill, when you players like technical ability and you know, all, and you know Scotland have learned that the hard way in various games over the years, then. You know, you really have to fancy them. And, uh, but, you know, in Croatia, you know, I remember I was in London the night Croatia knocked out England that night. I was sitting in a, a hotel bar in London trying desperately to keep quiet and Croatia knocked out England from the last, the last World Cup, was it? Mm-hmm. So I was in a London hotel lounge and, you know, the, the place was... Just, you know, all these St. George's flags are flying, and I'm sitting there biting my hand And Croatia scored. So, you know, there are lots of good nations. Germany, I don't think, will be a force this time. No. You're always looking at Spain, you're looking at Belgium, you're looking at England. And as I say, I just think of the quality of player I've got coming through, I think, and all the home games I've got as well, as we know from history, when England play their home games and when they're favourable linesmen, anything can happen. <laughs>
1: Exactly, I think England will be one of the front runners. Um, uh, Belgium's might tip, personally can't rule really out France yeah. as well. World champions, yeah. you know, Italy are, are mm-hmm. looking a better side as well. So it's going to be
4: fascinating.
1: Um, but Scotland will just um, draw their games in the group season and winning penalties all the way. We've got this. <laughs> if only that awesome. was true.
4: <laughs> well, you know what? You know when you, when you look at when you look at the luck we've had, or the fortune we've had recently, you think you begin to think well. Maybe the football and gods are finally beginning to shine on us. Maybe we are going to draw our way to the last 16, as you say. Maybe we're finally going to flick our way to the second stage of a major international tournament when we least deserve it. And you know what? See if that happens. Brilliant. I don't care. I really don't care how we do it. Just if we could do it, if we could do it in my lifetime, mm-hmm. and you've got a bit longer left than me, well and good.
1: Well, let's let's hope so and um, you know people only remember the winners of these things just ask Greece 2004 anyway thanks very much for your time Stephen um, I've enjoyed that and um, enjoy the tournament and I hope that I'm in the um, the crowd as well we'll wait and see
4: listen I'll, I'll, we'll, we'll do this again after Scotland have been knocked out penalties in the last four okay
2: yeah, enjoyed perfect.
4: it thanks for that thanks for having me on John thanks Cheers.
2: but I'll give you one more chance yes sir i can boogie but i need a certain song i can boogie